gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. You know, our special co-host, Kurt Collins, is becoming famous. You know, last week in the episode we did with Jerry Clark, he was complimented for something he had written about this fellow, this character from the UFO field. Was it Reinhold Schmidt? Yes. Oh, yeah. And Kevin Randall, of course, as many of our listeners know, our guest for this week, has his own show, and Kurt was a guest on it. Kevin, you're really, really hitting the top now. Hitting the top how? You mean by inviting Kurt on my show? Absolutely. Uh, He was at the very tippy top of the the list. So, yes. Uh, See, he's becoming famous. Hey, Gene, before we launch in, can we say a a sad word about uh, someone we lost? Yes, we should. This is somebody who was a frequent poster in our forums, but also a guest on the Paracast twice. And he was a fascinating character. Kurt? Thomas R. Morrison, Thomas Randolph Morrison, Randy to his loved ones. He was a ufologist, a brilliant fellow, and a talented artist. You know, I didn't know him that well, but I did correspond with him a bit. And I think he was only 58. So uh, he uh, passed away from a heart attack, taken away far too young from us. Uh, We have a little post in the forums and, uh, you know, people have expressed their um, condolences. So if if you want to add yours there, you know, please do. And and Gene's has posted links to the two shows he was on. So you can check those out. Yes. So this way you can hear what he had to say. Okay. So, in fact, let me look at it right now. Exactly when he was on. He was on on August 1st, 2021. And then in a roundtable discussion on December 3rd, 2017. Rest in peace, Thomas R. Morrison. Let's proceed with we older people. You know, me, Kevin, and Kurt. And I think I'm giving the ages in order there. But... Kevin, a lot of people, of course, have heard you over the years on the Paracast and a thousand and one other places. But for those who have never heard of Kevin Randall, tell us a little bit about your background and how you got embroiled in this UFO mess. I cannot believe that there's anybody listening to your show that would not have heard my name, at least in passing at some point. Having said that, I will note that... um, I'm a retired military officer, retired as a lieutenant colonel from the U.S. Army. I served as a helicopter pilot and an aircraft commander in Vietnam. I was an intelligence officer in Iraq. I served during the Gulf War, but I never deployed, so I was kind of in service for three years, or three wars. I got interested in UFOs because of my mother. She had an interest in science fiction, and she actually took me to the movie Earth vs. the Flying Saucers when it came out, which there dates me. My interest grew from there and she was always talking about alien civilizations and interstellar flight and contact with aliens and it's not a huge step from science fiction with those prospects into the ufo community because that's exactly what we're talking about so i always had an interest in it from that direction Um, i've written a number of books about ufos i've studied the roswell case in depth i've uh, looked at a number of other cases which are also fascinating Um, the socorro 
case. I did a book called Encounter in the Desert, which deals with the Lonnie Zamora sighting from 1964, Zamora being the policeman in Socorro who saw a landed object. Interestingly, people had kind of rejected that for a number of years simply because they thought of it as a single witness case. But as you delve into it deeply, you learn that Zamora was not a single witness. There were a number of people in Socorro who heard something and saw something in the sky. Now, what is really maddening about this is the people who were there in 1964, and I'm thinking of Hynek, and I'm thinking of the Air Force, and I'm thinking of uh, Rafe Stanford, didn't bother to get the names of these people. They would have been easy to find. There's a, a report in both in Pro the Project Blue Book files written by a man named Holder, who was an uh, Army officer who was involved in the investigation the first night. And in that, he said there had been three phone calls into the police station reporting this loud roar over, over Socorro about the time Lonnie Zamora was seeing the thing landed on the ground. I'm thinking, why did nobody try to find those people? It couldn't have been that hard because they knew where the thing came from. They knew the, the path where it, uh, when it took off. Socorro wasn't that big in 1964. Surely they could have knocked on a few doors and maybe found those people who had heard something, which would have made the case that much more important. But there was the landing traces, of course, that uh, Zamora uh, pointed out to. And we can see kind of the problems with some of the investigations, which were fairly amateur, uh, especially that from the from the Air Force in that investigation. I've done a book on the level land sightings, which I guess we'll talk about here in, in a minute or two. I've done a number of books about Roswell. I've looked at the Washington National sightings. I've looked at UFOs in the deep state and how are the reasons for the continued secrecy. You know, that's one of the questions that's often posed to those of us in the field. Why do they remain secret? I wouldn't be upset. It wouldn't cause a um, radical change in my livestock because you say, well, you know, the Roswell case took place 70 years ago. It's just not that big a deal. And the answer has to do with continuing power and the perception of what happens when a technologically superior civilization meets a technologically more primitive civilization. And it's about the retention of power. So we're looking at all of that. But I you know, looked at the whole body of the UFO phenomenon, looked at cattle mutilations, looked at crop circles, looked at abductions and all of those ancillary areas. I think that don't relate directly to the ufology as I look at it, which is the alien visitation type aspect in the crash at Roswell and some of the landing traces. So that's kind of where I come from. Now, a question I would have quickly before we get to Leveland about the deep state. So we have something here that's going on for over 70 years for the modern UFO era. How do you keep this a secret when you've got generation after generation of people in the military who go to different positions, retire, die off. You have different levels of leadership in government, CIA, presidents, etc. How do you retain a level of secrecy through all this? Well, first of all, I haven't maintained the level of secrecy because we're chatting about it. What we're talking about is the hiding of the evidence. And if you take a look at the way our government works, in the days, today's world, the people at the top of those organizations, not the appointees, the, the Secretary of Defense or the Secretary of State, but the, the underlings, uh, the bureaucrats, and they linger from, from administration to administration. We're seeing people who were in the Clinton administration showing up in the Biden administration and vice versa. So you look at all of that, 
And they're the ones clued into this, and they understand that to retain their power and to retain the monetary benefits, it's in their best interest to remain silent. There is no motivation for them to leak the stuff into the public arena. So those of us at the far end of the spectrum are left struggling with trying to find those lower ranking people who will tell us something that we need to know and trying to document where the information came from. And I think that's why we see the, the the problems with getting into the information is because the deep state as it exists, which I think people call the shadow government as well, is really managed by the bureaucrats that remain, remain in their positions from administration to administration. And they're kind of um, keying all of that. I talked to a, a fellow about Jimmy Carter. Jimmy Carter was going to tell us all that he knew about flying saucers when he got became president. And I'm thinking, I'm the president. I can get the information. I, I go to the director of CIA, and I said, what's the deal on flying saucers? And he says, well, Mr. President, I can't tell you. It's too highly classified. My response is, you're fired. Bring your deputy in. But what we find out is it doesn't work quite that easily. When Carter was president-elect, he brought in the director of the Central Intelligence Agency, which was George H.W. Bush. And he said, Director Bush, want to know about the flying saucers? You know, we want to know more about this, and we'll get into Levenland in a few minutes, but we want to get into this deep state because so much now is concerned with the new Pentagon study, alleged new Pentagon study. Kevin Randall, our special guest co-host and uh, upcoming movie star, Kurt Collins, he's going to hate me for saying that. I'm Gene. You're in the Paracast. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. No matter if supply lines are down, product deliveries are slow, and that most everything costs more these days, you still have neck and shoulder pain, right? Good news. Sunny Bay has new products that target neck and shoulder pain. Products that are in stock now, ready to ship anywhere now. Like our extra-long neck heating pads. They provide soothing relief to painful, sore necks and backs. You can heat them in a microwave oven, and they come in a variety of colors and patterns. And for stress relief, get our lavender-scented hands-free neck wraps or maybe you need one of our smaller lower back wraps great for seniors again there's no shipping delays from sunny bay find our new products on amazon walmart etsy and sunny-bay.com just search for sunny bay neck wraps all our products are great for men or women are reusable and easy to clean remember just search for sunny bay neck wraps order now because stock is high and shipping is fast from sunny bay 
Frustrated trying to get business capital? Want to take the slow process and rejection out of the equation? GCNloans.com removes the slow, irritating approval process. Instead, get quick, simple funding. Powered by David Allen Capital, 80% of our pre-qualified clients are approved in days. Pre-qualify at GCNloans.com and get your money this week. It's that easy. GCNloans.com. That's GCNloans.com. Jose works on a farm. Safety is important. His boss calls 811 to determine where it's okay to dig. This protects Jose from hitting an underground line and from serious injury. Because Jose can't tell exactly where or how deep the lines are, he doesn't dig until 811 tells him it's safe. The most important thing is that Jose works safe and goes home to his family. For more information, visit farmsafe811.org. A message from the Pipeline Operators for Ag Safety Campaign. I need to file my tax return right the first time. How can I be sure to do that? Doing your taxes yourself? Using e-file is the best way to file an accurate tax return. Mistakes can delay your refund, so spend an extra few minutes making sure you can file an accurate return the first time around. Avoid common errors by spelling all names correctly and using correct Social Security numbers. Double-check your bank account numbers for direct deposit and double-check your math, too. Oh, yeah, don't forget to sign and date your return. No other network provides the level of customer service we do. When it comes to radio advertising, we are your one-stop shop. And no matter how big or small your business is, we can help. Email us at advertise at GCNlive.com and an experienced advertising executive will help you take the first step towards driving more customers to your business or website. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. You see, I've inflated Kurt's ego. No, Kurt's a good guy. We're just having fun with him. Kevin, let's just continue with that there. So if... President-elect Jimmy Carter asks CIA Director George H.W. Bush what's going on with the flying saucers. And George H.W. Bush says, well, Mr. President-elect, I want to remain as the director of CIA. And Jimmy Carter says to him, I'm sorry, I'm bringing my own guy in. So the director of CIA says, well, I can't tell you about that stuff anyway because you're not the president yet. You're the president-elect. So that's one way you kind of dodge the bullet. The other way you do it is the president comes to you and says, I want to know everything you can tell me about these UFOs. And whomever he's talking to, the director of the CIA, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, uh, the head of the FBI, whoever, says, well, Mr. President, that's a complicated question. There's an awful lot of parts to this thing. Let me get with some of the people and we'll prepare a report for you. We'll pull all these things together and we'll prepare a concise report so you can understand exactly what's going on. And somehow that report never gets done. Something happens that diverts his attention. With Jimmy Carter, we had the hostage crisis in, in, in Iran. I think with Clinton being coming interested in UFOs, well, suddenly we had uh, Monica Lewinsky. And I, I hate to bring her name up because I kind of feel sorry for the poor woman and the way she's been treated. But, I mean, that's the kind of thing to do. They, they manipulate the situation so that somehow that report never gets done. You, you think, see- by the way, if we're going to be conspiratorial because you already dropped it, 
that maybe some of these situations arise because some people in the deep state arrange to manipulate existing situations to take over in terms of the stage of events so that the UFO stuff is shunted aside. Or, or we can look at it, they take the uh, time to, to divert attention using the crises that erupt, because crises erupt all the time, and they can always find something the way, the way to divert it. But I, th- I think what they do is, is we take a look at the uh, report that was due to Congress on June 25th of, of last year. I always think of it as a great disaster, not unlike the Custer Massacre, which took place on June 25th. But I'm thinking about the level of competency that was displayed by that report. It was a poorly organized high school report that would have gotten a C minus. I mean, it told us nothing. He said, well, we had 144 reports. Well, is that 144 separate incidents or is that 144 reports of, say, 70 incidents or 50 incidents? What, what does that mean? But we don't know. They haven't given us that answer. We couldn't figure out any of them but one. Well, that doesn't tell us anything either. And they said, well, we'll get back to you guys in 90 days with a, with a more comprehensive report. That was October 25th. Did any comprehensive report? Or come out on October 25th. No, we're still waiting for that. I mean, they just yes, died. but now they have another musical chairs because the 2022 defense budget has another item to create a UFO office. I guess replacing the other office, which is why it can't produce anything. And this one adds one thing about it that interests me is human effects as part of the picture. I just wonder what they think, whether somebody throws up after they see a UFO or something more elaborate, like in the Cash Landrum case. It's like deflection. Well, we had that organization, now we've got this group, and now we've got the next group. And by the time we wonder for a report from the next group, there's going to be another one, the 2023 military budget, that will have still a third, fourth, or 75th UFO group. Well, I think of the what's going on now as Twining 2.0. You know, if you remember, General Twining issued a, a letter or an order in September of 1947 saying that, you know, the phenomenon, whatever it is, is not uh, illusionary or fictitious. It's something real out there, and we need to investigate it. And he created an office with a, a security clearance or security classification, and people were supposed to be preparing reports on what was going on and gathering sighting information and that sort of thing. And what happened to that? Absolutely nothing. After, after six or eight months, the emphasis was off, and nobody cared. Nobody did anything about it until Ruppelt came in in 52 and, or 51 and tried to reorganize that, and pretty soon he's gone, and uh, we end up with a whole bunch of directors or chiefs of Project Blue Book who couldn't care less about flying saucers and think it's a waste of their time and that there's nothing to it. And it culminates in the Condon Committee report in 1969. Here is the scientific study of UFOs. It's going to end all the discussion. It's going to find out exactly what's going on. And we learn decades later it was all a put-up job that the conclusions of the report were written prior to an investigation and prior to the contract being signed. The Air Force said to the Condon Committee, we'd like you to report that there's no national security uh, implications. We'd like you to say some nice things about the way the Air Force has conducted their investigation. And we would like you to suggest that we close the investigation because there's nothing of value that's going to be learned by further investigation. And lo and behold, 1969, when the report comes out, that's exactly what they found. Even though we now know that they ran into a national security 
UFO sighting that they couldn't get information on because the national security veil was dropped on them. And I'm thinking there of the Belt Montana sightings, I think from 1967, where 10 missiles in a flight of intercontinental ballistic missiles was shut down from an outside source. Well, that's national security, because if something can shut down the missiles from outside, you don't want the Soviets at the time, the Soviets, to know that it can be done because they'd be looking for the method to do it. So it's a national security issue. So there was a national security issue that dealt with UFOs that the Condon Committee was aware of, but they said, no, there's nothing to it. We don't care. The whole point is it's it's been manipulated from the very beginning. There was concern in 1947 when right after Kenneth Arnold made his sighting, and then you had the Roswell crash and the and Ruppelt himself said going through the administrative files showed that the Pentagon was in a panic in the summer of 1947. But that panic eventually eroded when the invasion fleet didn't show up. And there was nothing going on that was of great interest to them. So they lost interest in it when it when there was no consequence for it. And that's where we are today now. We hear about sightings from 2004, 2005 that may be a glitch in the electronic instruments being used we don't know because they won't tell us any of that sort of thing and now they're going to create another office to investigate ufos well i've been down this road before and i don't have much hope that it's going to take us to the right place oh boy um that well that's a lot to digest but it's a great overview of history and and it brings us right up to the present day so i wanted to before we get into Leveland, i think uh, i wanted to say um there's a lot of people that maybe who watched the, the Project Blue Book TV show, and they may have the impression that uh, that the way they investigated was that a scientist like Dr. Hynek jumped into a car or plane and rushed to the scene. And I think you're going to tell us that it worked a little differently, and I'd like for you to also maybe give your opinion on the competency of the investigations. I think if you take a look at the conclusions from the investigation, and I'll mention just one thing from Leveland up front here, is after they looked at all the information, they decided it was ball lightning. And that's still the, the conclusion on the file. In 1957, scientists were still arguing about the existence of ball lightning. So they're using a phenomenon that they didn't know for sure exists to explain another phenomenon that they weren't sure existed. That's a good way to cover your bases. I don't know this is working or not, but here's something else we don't know about. We do know that Kevin Randall's with us. Kurt Collins is our special guest co-host. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. What if you could cut your heating bills this winter with your existing wood-burning fireplace and not spend thousands doing it? You can with Great Wall of Fire Fireplace Grates. Our U.S. patented, made-in-America Wall of Fire Grates increase fireplace efficiency, eliminate fireplace smoke problems, and come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. See our grates in action and get free shipping from walloffire.com or call 800-274-7364. Fireplace heat without fireplace smoke. Walloffire.com. Has your body ever gone low blood sugar feeling weak, shaky, knowing you better eat something fast? 
We all know high blood sugar can lead to many metabolic problems. At GCNteam.com, we have a healthy blood sugar pack focusing on the structure and function of stable blood sugar. Find us at GCNteam.com or call 877-878-4203. Nothing feels worse than unstable blood sugar. Call 877-878-4203. That's 877-878-4203. USA Radio News with Wendy King. The FDA has expanded its authorization of the antiviral drug remdesivir to some COVID-19 outpatients. The antiviral drug has been approved for patients age 12 and older who weigh at least 88 pounds with a positive COVID-19 test results. The FDA also revised the emergency use authorization for the drug to include pediatric patients under the age of 12 who are also experiencing mild symptoms. The actions will allow the patients to receive remdesivir through intravenous infusion for a total of three days. The FDA said while these actions provide another treatment option to reduce risk of hospitalization, remdesivir is not a substitute for vaccination. They stressed that vaccination remains the strongest preventative measure against COVID-19. This is USA Radio News. There's an update in the case of Gabby Petito, who was found dead in September in a national park in Wyoming. The FBI office in Denver said a notebook found near the remains of Gabby Petito's boyfriend, Brian Laundrie, shows an admission by Laundrie that he was responsible for her death. Laundrie immediately became the prime suspect. His body was found in October, and authorities say he killed himself. At least one person was injured in a four-vehicle crash in Los Angeles Friday, including a vehicle driven by Arnold Schwarzenegger. The actor and former California governor wasn't injured. Details are still emerging on what caused the crash. Authorities say the impact was so severe that the airbags in Schwarzenegger's SUV were released. Police say alcohol and drugs were not involved in the collision. So far, no one has been charged in the incident. You're listening to USA Radio News. You don't sit behind a desk every day to earn a living. You're out and about making it happen. And sometimes you get a little bit behind on your paperwork. You know, like bookkeeping and paying your taxes. It's easy to get behind on paying your taxes. It happens to the best of us. And you know what happens next. The big bad IRS comes knocking on your door. And when that happens, you need to call the good old boys at the tax doctor. Let them do what they do best. Deal and negotiate with the IRS so you pay the lowest you can in back taxes that the law allows. We are a 100% U.S.-based company, and we've saved our clients millions over the years in back taxes. If you owe $10,000 or more in back taxes, call my friends right now at the tax doctor and learn more. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. 800-507-3137. That's 800-507-3137. Hi, this is James Fox. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. Let me just drop one thing to you parenthetically, and we can go on with what Kurt was talking about. We see situations here in the current discussion about UFOs where two former CIA directors, Woolsey and Brennan, are saying we need to get more information 
And I'm thinking to myself, they were directors of the CIA for a number of years, yet they had no access? I think that they would have had access. They just may never have, have used the access. Uh, when you're dealing with highly, highly classified materials, uh, if you do not have a need to know, you're basically excluded. And I would think the director of central intelligence could determine what he had a need to know if something came up. And it may, not, may have been nothing came up in that time frame that created a uh, reason for him to want to know things like that. And that's the other aspect that we really never think about is that I think when you're talking to the president, or you're talking about these things and you're wondering is if what the president may know, if the president doesn't ask specific questions about something, it, he may never get any answer about it. If something doesn't happen to draw his attention to it, they may not brief him on it because he has all this other stuff he has to deal with on a daily basis. So if there's not some major UFO sighting or something like that, uh, it's just not on their radar to take a look at. Uh, so it may be that kind of a situation, or they may have known something and they're just not telling us what they know because of the classification of it. Uh, you've got to understand that when you end up, for the most part, in these high-level positions with their top-secret clearances, you've gone through a, a career of working your way up to the top levels. I mean, we have analysts at the very lowest levels leaking all kinds of crap into the mainstream media. But these aren't the people at the top who would have access to the really good stuff and, and that sort of thing. So you have to take a look at who they are and what they're doing and what are the benefits for them keeping quiet or lying about it. And the benefits are extremely high. If you don't talk about it, you when you retire from the CIA, you can uh, become a consultant as long as you keep your top secret clearance. Uh, and have access to p other people who around you who can help you learn what you need to learn or you can bug about what you want them want to bug them about. So you have to take a look at all of that sort of thing. So you have to wonder exactly what these guys may have known, what the guys may have asked about, and it may not have come up. There's a wonderful example of this in what was known as Operation Solo. And this was an F FBI project back in the um, 50s, 60s, and 70s. And there was a, a fellow, a Morris Childs, and I can't think of the name of his brother. But in the 1930s, these guys were at the top of the Communist Party in the United States. They were just rabid communists. And they were being aided by the Soviets. They were thinking of them as a wonderful way into the U.S. government. Well, the guys flipped. They decided communism wasn't the greatest thing in the, the world, and, and they became agents for the FBI. And it was run as Operation Solo. It was run out of the FBI office in New York City. And the people didn't know about what was going on. I mean, the FBI, I'm sure Hoover probably knew, but the FBI didn't know. The presidents weren't briefed on these guys because he had no need to know, with one exception. And this is what, what kind of keys this thing, is when Jerry Ford became president, he had a meeting coming up with the Soviets. And he was worried about the meeting. He was worried about what he would know and how he'd respond and what the Soviets knew and all of this sort of thing. And he was brought into, or read into, Operation Solo. So he, he knew that there was these two guys who had the utmost clearance availability to get access to the top Soviet leadership. And the, the Soviet leadership didn't understand that they understood Russian. 
So they would say things to one another in Russian, thinking that Morris Childs and his, and his brother didn't know what was going on, and they understood perfectly what was being said. But it was a, a program that was so highly classified that the president wasn't brought into it if there was no need to bring him in. Jerry Ford sort of created the need to bring him in, and he was told about it, but he said nothing about this after his presidency ended. And that gives you a kind of an idea of how some of these things work, that they're run at a level by high-ranking bureaucrats who they're not really rogue they're doing the job that they're supposed to do but they're keeping the information they're keeping the information away from the um, uh, higher levels of the government because that's what they're doing they don't want them to have an inkling of what is happening and we can see this in various levels of government harry truman was not brought into the atomic bomb until he became president and was necessary to brief him on what was going on because the war was going on so we can see historical instances where they compartmentalized the information and limited the access to it. And so you have to take a look at all of that sort of thing to understand how this is kept secret and why it's kept secret, because these guys at the very top know um, that once they're out of the government, and away from this sort of thing, they now have access to high-paying jobs. They become lobbyists. They become consultants. They do all of this sort of thing, and it's kind of part of the fee that they get. Or they go, they can go out and make speeches for a million dollars a pop, uh, things like that. But if they if they let the cat out of the bag, then their access is granted, and they'll be they'll be demonized, and. Uh, their credibility will be attacked, and they won't be able to garner all these benefits that they've earned over their years of, of working for the government. Well, as Gene suggests, there are a few people that seem to be dropping a few hints. If you, if you had a chance to talk to some of these, and, you know, there are some mainstream reporters asking these questions. What, what kind of, I don't know, would you ask for them to drop a hint? What, what, where should we be looking? Well, that's the problem. You know, we have to know. We have to know where to. Where is the Roswell information hidden? There has to be information on it. It had. There has to be. There has to be something going on. And we can't. We've tried everything we can think of to get in access to that. And from talking to high-ranking military officers and congressional representatives, uh, Carl Flock, through his wife, who worked with um, Congressman Schiff, created a situation where. Um, there was a great interest in the Roswell case, but what did that get us? It got us Project Mogul for crying out loud. Uh, just another dodge in the long history of let's make up great excuses and people will buy whatever we tell them because they always have. You don't have reporters really questioning the, the Project Mogul explanation anymore. I, I see it all the time. When you look at a story, they always bring up Mogul. The Roswell case was solved as this top secret Project Mogul. What was going on in New Mexico, the launching of the balloons was not top secret. It wasn't even classified. The ultimate purpose was classified, but they're using that as an umbrella to hide everything else. What was going on in New Mexico was out in the open. And in fact, pictures of mogul arrays appeared in the newspapers on July 10th, 1947, as here's what some of the flying saucers are. And the, the um, news media bought it completely. They just I think they wanted to be thought of as so sophisticated they wouldn't believe in the idea of flying saucers. It's just 
something they wouldn't do. And you see that that level of tongue-in-cheek reporting quite a bit even today. Yes, we get some good reporting, we get some good questions, and we see the Congress now interested in it, uh, creating congressional mandates. But there's way to work ways to work around that. And I just have no expectation that anything of any value is going to leak its way into the public arena. And I'll say this because the the uh, document says that they're only taking reports from military personnel and pilots looking for national security. Well, they can drop the national security veil under this thing and not tell us anything. And I think that's where it's going to go. Well, we've looked at this. We haven't got up anything. And there's some national security implications we have to deal with. So uh, we're not going to let you know what's going on. And I think that's the way it's going to be. They're going to drop the national security umbrella over it. And we're all done. Well, we, we talked to Jerry Clark. He was a little more optimistic. You know, we, we think maybe that the, the one hope in all this lies that since there is so much in the public that the, that the military, uh, that the government has acknowledged an interest, whether or not they're going to share information. So maybe we can leverage this with, you know, some ap- academic pursuits and maybe they can discover something on their own. You know, there's uh, Avi Loeb's project, uh, um, the Galileo project, and you know, there's some money behind that, both from private investors and from Harvard. We've got Kurt and Kevin and Gene. You're in the Paracast. You are listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First game attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions. Silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs generator and lung delivery system at Silverlungs.com. That's Silverlungs.com. Are you afraid to go to the mailbox because of letter after letter from the IRS? Are they stacking on more and more penalties and interest? By now, you know the problem won't go away on its own. Don't let the IRS chase you to your grave with penalties and interest and liens and levies. You need real help now. I'm Dan Pilla. I wrote the book on tax debt settlement, and I helped thousands of people solve tax problems they thought couldn't be solved. I can help you too. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, danpilla.com. That's danpilla.com. danpilla.com. Hey folks, Tom D for ParanormalDate.com. 
Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up free at ParanormalDate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together. People who are interested in the strange, the unusual, ghosts, zombies, UFOs, crop circles, and more. ParanormalDate.com was developed for you, people who seek a little more than the other dating services offer. You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com, and if you decide you like it and you want to connect with others, use the code GEORGE for a substantial discount. So many people want to share their experiences with the paranormal, the afterlife, the unusual, and this is the place to meet and share common interests with those of like minds. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com. That's ParanormalDate.com. Use the code word George and start meeting others. Get going now and connect with someone you like. I am a non-attorney spokesperson representing a team of lawyers who've helped people that have been injured or wronged. Have you been diagnosed with cancer? Are you one of the millions who have taken Zantac or other generic versions of this popular drug to help treat stomach issues? Then pay close attention to this message. The FDA said it detected low levels of a probable cancer-causing chemical known as NDMA in Zantac and other generic forms of this popular drug. They've banned sales and even removed it from the market. If you've been diagnosed with cancer and you've taken Zantac or a generic equivalent, call the legal helpline now. You could receive a free cash award and have your medical expenses covered. And there's no upfront cost to you. They only get paid if you win. So please call now. 800-998-7173. 800-998-7173. That's 800-998-7173. This is Jacques Vallée. You're listening to the podcast the gold standard of paranormal radio. So briefly, Kurt Collins is referring to the private efforts to look at UFOs, specifically Dr. Avi Loeb, the Harvard astronomer, and Project Galileo. Kurt, continue. Oh, I'm just wondering if, you know, I don't think the government will open up, but maybe just the publicity and and maybe the academics and private efforts can make some strides forward. So so what's your opinion on that? Well, I've talked to Avi Loeb a couple of times, and I keep getting emails from him when he's holding press conferences, and so I can attend the press conferences, which is kind of cool. But he's looking outward. He's not looking at UFOs. He doesn't want to have a thing to do with the the history of UFOs. He's looking for other objects entering the solar system, like the one that uh, passed uh, through a couple of years ago, that kind of sparked his interest in the possibility of alien artifacts moving through the universe or through the galaxy. But he's getting pushback from the academic world as well. You had uh, um, John Mack, who was a Harvard professor and a Harvard uh, I don't know if he was, a, I think he was a psychologist, a psychiatrist as opposed to a psychologist, doing his work. And, and Harvard wasn't real pleased with that information leaking out. So you have some scientists who have in the past come forward and been interested in the UFO phenomena, but there's always pushback from the majority of the scientific community about that. I think that's the road we're going down here. I can see the hints of it by the way things are worded and the way things are conducted, that that we're not going to get 
what we expect to get, that somehow they're going to dodge that bullet based on the way things are written. You've got to look at the higher ranking military personnel and the higher ranking people in the civilian side of the government and how that's worked out. Back in 19, was it 1948, they did an estimate of the situation. The, the fellows at the lower end of the spectrum created what a document called an estimate of situation, which in intelligent work is you put together the information you have and you send it up the chain of command for their kind of comments on it, which is what they had done. And they concluded that there was a interplanetary component to flying saucers, interplanetary as opposed to interstellar. But the chief of staff of the Air Force, General Vandenberg, said, no, you guys didn't prove it. Not only did he reject their report, but practically everybody who'd worked on it got fired. When the dust settled, the only people left in the Project Blue Book, Project Sign, Project Grudge, were the very low-ranking people. The others were given other assignments and moved to other other arenas to do their work. And at that point, the investigation deteriorated into just a sort of public relations outfit to explain UFO sightings. Well, Gina, you've been binding the store on this for a long time, watching things. So um, do you see any hope in this? And and what do you think? Uh, you know, Kevin seems to have a negative opinion. So surely there's there's a bright light somewhere on all this. Well, I can see why he's jaded after all the things we've seen over the years. So he's certainly being reasonable. Jerry Clark, of course, is being a lot more optimistic that this may be the one. The thing that bothers me, though, if you look through the history of the current UFO interest or UAP interest starting in the early 2000s, we've got, what, four different groups. We have the original group, the group written about in the New York Times. In fact, Ralph Blumenthal, the New York Times writer, one of the three who was writing that series, will be here on a future Paracast episode to talk about that and also the book he wrote about the life of Dr. Mack. But anyway, so we have those two. Then we have the Pentagon UAP task force. And now we've got still another group coming with the 2022 budget. It kind of makes you feel that this is some sort of deflection, which I've said. You go from group to group, you play musical chairs, and you bring up hopes or you just get people sick of the whole thing and they go on to do something else. Or is that the hope, Kevin? I think you're absolutely right. They figure, well, we play out this card, uh, this string long enough and people are going to lose interest in it and go somewhere else to get their information about other things. They're not going to be interested in flying saucers anymore. We've got to look at the whole history of the UFO phenomenon. We see these cyclic interests. You know, there was a big, big push and big interest in 1947, but it tapered off. We had 52. We had 57. We got into the mid-1960s. We had a big interest in UFOs, 1973. And then it kind of tapered off until we hit around 1990 and start building with the information about the Roswell case. And it, then it uh, all of that petered out. So it's just one of those things we look at. Uh, it's very cyclic in, in nature. It's the way the news media drives things. And it's what, what else comes up? You know, we've had uh, a lot of news about the pandemic. Uh, with the daily daily counts of how many people got tested and how many people got sick and all of that sort of thing. And that kind of has caught a lot of people's interest because it affects them directly where you take a look at UFOs and how has that affected you directly? So you have to take a look at all of that sort of thing. But I, I am 
just very, very pessimistic about this based on what I have seen. And the way some of the news media has talked about this, they talk about, well, the Navy released these videos saying, you know, these are these are real videos. Yeah, they're real videos, but what do they show? They're not saying they're alien. They're saying these are videos that were taken by Navy personnel. And there's a whole different level of nuance there that I think some people have missed when they're looking at. It. Not only that, the videos were taken, what, more than a decade ago, and we're just finding out about it. And they're not very impressive when you think about what they're showing and how much of the videos that we have our hands on. Surely the Navy's got more information about this. Surely the uh, Pentagon's got more information about this, but we're getting a very limited access to it. So I think we have to take a look at all of that. You know, you can talk to the pilots who are involved in this sort of thing, but we've talked to pilots for literally decades about their encounters with UFOs, and somehow it's always shown to be not quite as exciting as we thought, or they've they've found a way to deflect attention to some other aspect of it and, and bury the whole thing under a, a mountain of paperwork. Baffle them with, we don't want to use that term because this is a family radio show. Okay, speaking of the 1957 wave, and I first heard about this a year or two later, Major Donald Keogh had a book where Leveland was raised because of his arguments with the Air Force over their investigation and the results thereof. You wrote a book about it. Why did you pick this particular sighting to cover? I think it's almost as important as a Roswell sighting because we had witnesses at various locations, multiple locations, independent witnesses, reporting essentially the same thing. We had the UFO interacting with the environment, stalling car engines, dimming headlights, putting filling radios with static, telling basically the same thing. We had uh, law enforcement involved in the sightings, and we see how the Air Force responded to it, which was they spent, they sent a staff sergeant from Colorado Springs to Leveland. He spent an entire seven hours investigating the case. Well, it's not fair. He didn't spend seven hours t investigating the case. He spent some time investigating it, but he was there for seven hours. And they came up with this cockamamie idea that it was ball lightning, and that was the end of it. But what you see, if you go through the Project Blue Book files on this, you find out the Air Force is kind of manipulating the situation. In one case, there's a letter in the files that suggests that we're going to wait to see what NICAP has to say, NICAP being Don Kehoe, who you mentioned. Let's see what he has to say, because it's easier to respond to that than, than come out with something of our own. And Kehoe and the Air Force got involved in this argument over the number of witnesses. Kehoe said there were nine witnesses. The Air, says, Air Force said, no, there were only three. And that's really irrelevant, because if you go through the Project Blue Book files, I can find in the Project Blue Book files suggestions of more than nine witnesses who were involved in some aspect of it. The sheriff, and I hate his name, but it's his name, and I can't get around it, Sheriff um, Weir Clem, said at one point, quoted in the newspaper, saying that he had gotten literally hundreds of phone calls about this object over those days, and yet we hear about only a limited number of those people. It was a massive sighting that uh, took place not only in Leveland, but if you take a look around uh, the rest of the United States in that time frame, November of 1957, you can see an awful lot of these stories where the UFO was approaching close to the ground, stalling car engines and interacting with the environment in that way. There's also, you look at the Air Force file and they're saying, well, 
sheriff only saw a streak of light some 900 yards away, a bright light for two seconds. But you look at some of the newspaper articles published before the Air Force investigator showed up. He was talking about how he got much closer to it, and he saw an oval-shaped or sort of a football-shaped object. So you see that the, the manipulation of the data that we've heard about for years, I think that um, Clem uh, told Don Berliner, in 1975, that he had seen a, a, a shaped object. So we can look at the newspaper articles from 1957 when he said the same thing. Let's break it here and we'll have more with Kevin, Gene, and Kurt. You're in the Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veterans nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. Okay, so right now you're showing that in the Leveland case, a lot more people apparently saw something than was originally reported. And you mentioned something about 1975, two years before this case. What was that, Kevin? Well, in 1975, Don Berliner had interviewed the sheriff. And so the sheriff is telling him what he had seen and what, what how he reacted to it. And the sheriff was retired by this time. And he told Berliner a little bit more than he had said 
was recorded uh, as saying by the Air Force. If you look at the Air Force statement, it doesn't match what Berliner got from the sheriff. But more importantly, in the days prior to the Air Force investigator showing up, you had some reporters talking to the sheriff, and he's telling this, these reporters the same thing that he ter- told Berliner. So you have an Air Force report that's been manipulated, so that it's not the sheriff seeing the flying saucer or the UFO close to the ground. It's him seeing a streak of light off in the distance, and it's no big deal. So you can see the way the information has been manipulated. But if you delve deeper into this case, uh, you find an awful lot of interesting things going on. There was a report of landings. The sheriff and the provost marshal from East Air Force Base. Now, East Air Force Base, of course, is in Lubbock, Texas. And Lubbock, Texas is, what, 15 minutes from level land, something like that. You had Air Force officers coming out with the sheriff. They were out looking for the burned area. Now, the report is is they didn't find it. But later on, uh, when Don Berlinson, too many Dons in this story, Don Kehoe, Don Berliner, Don Berlinson, when he interviewed the widow of the sheriff and the sheriff's daughter, they talked about the sheriff finding a burned area, a circular burned area. I think it was north of Leveland. Not only do we have it interacting with the environment by stalling the car engines, we also have a burned area. We have witnesses to that. We have witnesses to the object and its the way it operated on the ground and all of that sort of thing. And yet, when you take a look at the Air Force file, they talk to six people. Of those six, three saw an object. The other three didn't have quite the experiences that that uh, those first three did. And one of the people they talked to was the sheriff, and he was talking about a streak of light in the distance. Well, that clearly was set up because of what uh, the Air Force NCO wanted him to say, because we know what he said prior to his arrival and what he said much later about what he had seen. So you've got a, a, a series, a great series of sightings. The Condon Committee mentions the level land sightings once in the uh, massive report saying we didn't do anything with that because it had been 10 years ago and we couldn't find the cars. They were talking about what they wanted to do was do a magnetic mapping of the cars. How you do it is you place a magnet on the car and see which way north points on it and you, you map it in different places so you can get readings of how the the metal in the car affects the um the compass, and then if it's exposed to a massive electromagnetic effect, that should t- change the mapping of the car. They said, well, we couldn't find the cars, and they didn't bother to interview any of the people. They just let it go at that. Instead, they talked to two people whose UFO sightings with electromagnetic effects weren't all that great. But when you take a look at the totality of the case, there's a great deal of evidence there for something extremely unusual happening around Leveland, Texas. A couple of days later, there was another sighting by a number of people near Oro Grande, New Mexico, which is oh, probably four hours from, from Leveland. But it's, I mean, the same sort of area. You've got uh, sightings in the Panhandle of Texas near Amarillo and Canadian Texas prior to the Lavaland sightings on, on November 2nd, you've got sightings there. You've got sightings all around the area. So you've got some very good sightings. And, and part of it was complicated by a guy named Reinhold Schmidt. And I bring that up for Kurt Collins because he diverted attentions to uh, Nebraska from Leveland and came up with the cockamamie story that got the interest of the newspaper. Kurt, you can explain that much better than I can. Well, just as, as where it relates to Leveland, he claimed he saw this oval UFO and he experienced car trouble when he was 
near it. So it's similar in that regards. But then his was a contactee story when he, he met people from out. Well, he didn't say they were from outer space originally. He's, in fact, he said they had a German accent. But as his series of adventures continued later, they were from Saturn. It was a big event in the press. And uh, as he investigated his background, they found him to have a criminal past. They put him under a psychological watch, and so he, in at least in some UFO circles, was portrayed as a victim of the cover-up, whereas he was just really a shady character, and they weren't sure if he had all his marbles. So he kind of monkeyed with the press on the uh, the Leveland story. So before we get back into the story there, um, I think a lot of this, uh, the information that we have, is due to kind of faulty investigation from the Air Force. And I was kind of under the impression that when the phone rang at Dayton, that they sent out somebody from the closest base, but that's not always the case. So, and, and you say this investigator only spent a, a few short hours and couldn't have possibly gotten all the witnesses. And I just the wanted official, you to, to kind of contrast this with, with how do they usually do it? And was this much worse than normal? What they did was officially what they would do. They would send out a, a, an investigator. I think at the time it was the... Uh, 1006 Air Intelligence Service Squadron with its headquarters in Colorado Springs, but they had units all around the um, the United States. It was an intelligence gathering organization. But they had guys at Reese Air Force Base, which is not all that far from, from it's in Lubbock, which is not all that far from, from Leveland. But and you know, end up getting into things that I would wish people would buy the book and find out. Sure. But, okay. But, but, but the guys from the base that night that when all this was going on, they showed up in Leveland. The sheriff had sort of a convoy with him. He was in uh, his car, his police car with one of his deputies. There was a state police car behind him. I think they call it the Texas Department of Public Safety. I know they call it that now. I, I think they called it that in 1957 as well. And then there was a third car with Air Force officers in it. So now what you have is the the official story is that the um, sheriff saw this object in the distance, and that's where the end of it. But there's Air Force officers who were with him, so they would have seen the object in the distance. And if they got close enough to see the shape, there is nothing that I can find that talks about what those Air Force officers saw and what interrogations they went through and what reports they may have filed. It's not in the Project Blue Book files. Clearly, the guy sent from Colorado Springs, he didn't talk to those guys because it's not in his report. Or maybe he did. Maybe he went over to Reese Air Force Base and spent a couple hours talking to those guys and then went back to Loveland and said, adios, muchachos, and, and went on home. But those sorts of things that you find, you, you find an interesting case uh, from the 1960s, for example, and you have uh, Hector Quintanella, who is the chief of Project Blue Book at the time. He's phoning it in. He's calling them and interviewing them on the phone, and they're not getting any good information from people on, on, on scene. There's any number of proposals on sending people out. Edwin, uh, Edwin um, Arthur Exxon, General Exxon, who was the commander of the base at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, and so people understand this, he was not the senior officer on the base. He didn't convey the whole thing. He was like the, the mayor. Uh, he took care of the facilities. He took care of those sorts of things. And in fact, in the Army, they now call it the mayor's cell. The guy is, the, the base commander is in the mayor's cell, and he takes care of that sort of thing. 
granted, Exxon was a high-ranking officer at the base, but he told both Don and me, Don Schmidt and me, that he would periodically get a call, and he would be told to get an airplane ready, and then some guys would show up, maybe from Washington, D.C., they'd get on the airplane, and they would deploy from Dayton, Ohio, out to a UFO sighting, and then they would come back to Dayton. So if you've got reporters following the, the trail, they left from Dayton, they went back to Dayton. The fact that they actually deployed originally from Washington, D.C., and probably went back there is lost in the translation. Yeah, these guys came back here, and, and here's a report that they, they, they didn't find anything interesting. So you can see that they were kind of manipulating the situation in that, in that, that sense as well. And that's where we get into the idea of, of these guys from Reese Air Force Base being involved in it much more heavily. But where did those reports go? I couldn't find them uh, in, in my searches for it. Uh, you look at the Project Blue Book files, and there's no hint of them talking to their guys who were there. And it's reported in the newspapers that these officers were there in 19, 1957. Well, all we hear about is the provost marshal who accompanied the sheriff the next day out looking for the landing sites. Let's continue with Kevin, Gene, and Kurt. You're in the Paracast. <laughs> Hey listeners, I want you to have the entire Paracast experience, so I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. Now with orders to stay at home, public health concerns, the reality of illness due to pathogens and viruses, your health is at an all-time high risk. That's why it's critical to take a proactive approach to boost your immune system. You can with new nano-colloidal silver from AmeriCare. Our patented process with tiny silver particles, one one-hundredth the size of a red blood cell, allows for maximum body absorption. AmeriCare's nano-colloidal silver effectively disinfects your body internally, attacking pathogens and viruses while supercharging your immune system. Colloidal silver is antibacterial and antiviral. Simply put, it prohibits bacterial respiration, suffocating viral cells, preventing the virus from replicating. And now, due to public health concern, AmeriCare is authorized to offer our lowest and best price ever, around a dollar a day. But supplies are limited. Purchase nano-colloidal silver now at ImmuneSupportNow.com. That's ImmuneSupportNow.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Supplies are limited. Anytime, any place, anywhere, radio remains the most intimate of all forms of media. At home, at work, in the car, on smartphones. Over 90% of consumers still listen to radio every week. That makes choosing radio as a place to advertise your business one of the best decisions you can make. Email advertise at GCNlive.com and partner up with an experienced GCN representative. Advertise at GCNlive.com. Easy, affordable, effective. 
Get healthy, not high, with 100% pure CBD, powerful natural pain relief from Veterans Vitality. GCN listeners, have you ever thought about how CBD may help you? I'm sure you have heard about the many benefits of CBD. Well, here's your opportunity to try before you buy. Created by veterans and for everyone who deserves better choices, our CBD is derived from organic hemp, grown in the USA, and third-party tested. Veterans Vitality CBD saves you as much as 25 to 50% over our competition, and a portion of all sales is contributed to veteran nonprofits and events. Many of our customers have experienced improved quality of life, help with anxiety, PTSD, and overall well-being. Our products do not contain THC. They are safe, non-addictive, effective, and 100% legal. GCN listeners, get your free trial bottle of premium CBD by simply paying shipping and handling at GCNFreeCBD.com. That's GCNFreeCBD.com. Again, GCNFreeCBD.com. Offered by Veterans Vitality Premium CBD. Do the letters IRS give you anxiety? I'm Dan Pilla. I've defended people from the IRS for more than 40 years. My book, How to Get Tax Amnesty, created the tax resolution industry and is responsible for helping hundreds of thousands of people. It can help you, too. If you're a non-filer or facing IRS enforcement right now, your case is unique. You need real help, not cookie-cutter advice. My clients get my personal attention. Buy my book at danpilla.com and get a free consultation directly with me. That's danpilla.com. Let's start solving your tax problem right now. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So we're trying to assemble the details of Leveland, Texas from 1957. It's the topic of his current book. For Flying Disc Press. Kevin Randall, go ahead, please. The point simply is, we know that the Air Force officers were involved, but we can't find the reports. The sheriff, and I hesitate to mention this, and giving away too much of the book, but the next day, after uh, November 3rd, and Don Berlinson is the one who found this information after talking to a number of people in Leveland, the next day the sheriff takes his car, his police car, into the police mechanic and wants it looked at, see if there's anything wrong with it. And you have to ask yourself, why? Why would he do that? What happened? And that tells me that his car was stalled. He got close enough to it that the car, the car engine stalled, and he was taking it to the mechanic looking for a mechanical reason that the car, the car stalled to see if there was something wrong with the car. There would be no reason to do it if his car hadn't stalled. And if his car stalled, then so did the car behind him and the car behind that, and that would have been the Air Force officers. So they all had a good look at it, and they all were in cars that were probably stalled by it, but the... Um, Air Force NCO came to investigate it and never talked to the Air Force officers and never got that story from the sheriff. Or maybe he got the story from the sheriff, but he was told not to do it. You've mentioned a couple of times what they saw. Now, this is the textbook case for electromagnetic effects, but, but tell us a little bit about the best description of the UFO. that Because it wasn't a typical saucer, as I understand. It was egg-shaped and sometimes called torpedo-shaped, and I always thought that that was based on the angle that it was seen. I mean, if you look at a sort of a torpedo shape on the ground and you look at it from a specific angle, it's going to take on a more egg-shaped type of look to it. It was seen by a number of people close to the ground, close enough to stall the car engines, uh, starting at, I think, around 1030 at night on on November 2nd, 1957, when a, a fellow named Pedro Sacido, 
And the problem there is Saucedo is spelled an awful lot like saucer. So, of course, the news reporters are now taking cheap shots at the guy's name. But he uh, he reported that his pickup truck had been stalled and he was so frightened by what happened. He dived out of the pickup truck, rolled underneath it to protect himself. The passenger just sat there stunned paralyzed by what he was seeing and the object was a bright blue when it landed but turned to a bright red bright orange red when it took off they were so frightened by what they'd seen they didn't go to level land they went to another close by town and called the sheriff and reported that and of course the first thing that happens is the sheriff dispatcher thought they were drunk and didn't want anything to do with it but then they started getting additional phone calls from other people telling them virtually the same thing and this all took place over about two and a half hours in a time when we didn't have cell phones we didn't have instant messenger we didn't have instant communication so that pedro sacido couldn't get on his facebook account or his instagram account and say boy you people just won't believe what i just saw so you had a lot of people reporting the same sort of phenomenon over a period of two hours without access to all the information. And that's why I say they were independent witnesses, which makes it much more important. But they're reporting the same sorts of phenomenon with the installing of the car engines. Uh, this goes on for around two hours. And then the emphasis sort of shifts to White Sands Missile Range, which is near Oro Grande, by the way, where another great car stalling took place. But we had MPs see an object close to the ground. They didn't get close enough for the, their Jeep engines to stall. But what you see there is the Air Force smearing these guys uh, by reporting the UFO saying, well, they saw Venus or they saw the moon and they got caught in the hysteria of the flying saucer sightings. How? There's been no news media covering this when they went out and made their sightings. And they said, well, you know, these guys are just young, young guys, not well trained. They were 20 years old, 21 years old. And I'm thinking, you know, when I was in Vietnam, I was 19 years old. and I was an aircraft commander, putting a lot of authority in my my young hands. They certainly trusted me with that. But the Air Force is smearing the guys because of their their young age and their high school diplomas. Uh, that's what I had in Vietnam was a high school diploma type thing. So I was a little bit more sympathetic to the age of these guys. In fact, just in, in, in Vietnam, we had a guy we called Papa, the one of the senior helicopter pilots, and he was 23. Gives you an idea of the age of the, the pilots. But the point simply is, you see the Air Force smearing those guys of with faulty explanations. And then a day or so later, you have a guy named Stokes seeing the thing near Oro Grande, and he actually manifests a slight sunburn type effect on it. At the time, the Lorenzans from the Aero Phenomena Research Organization, I think, lived in Alamogordo and was friends with Stokes, uh, James Stokes, and got him to they, – they, they interviewed him and saw the, saw the slight burn. The Air Force then tried to smear him as well. So you've got to take a look at all of that sort of information and realize that it's, it was impossible for it all to get out at the, at the time, given the circumstances of, of the situation. Now, you mentioned age. Now, it was uh... – now, Stokes, wasn't he uh, quite a bit older than those those young guys you mentioned? Stokes was retired Navy, and he had worked at Alamogordo for, I think, 18 months or something. He was an engineer, and everybody called him an engineer, and the, and the Air Force said, well, he didn't have an engineering degree, and he'd been at, a, I think it was a NCO in the Navy and this sort of thing. And everybody, and it was kind of funny because some of the letters from the Air Force personnel who worked with him were very complimentary about his abilities and thought of him as an engineer. And the work he was doing was called an engineer. The job title called him an engineer. So you see the kind of smear the Air Force is trying 
to uh, level against these people to kind of reduce the credibility of them rather than investigating what they had to say and see if we could find out a little bit more information. But yeah, Stokes was quite a bit older than the people. And of course, Pedro Sacido had been a, it was a veteran of the Korean War, which had been over for four years. I think he was probably, I think he was around 30, if I remember correctly. The sheriff, of course, was older, and some of the other witnesses were much older. The, I was just looking at the way the Air Force attempted to smear the guys in uh, at White Sands Missile Range. To smear their own, that's, that's amazing. So this seems like one of the cases that if there is UFO cases that go in history books, that this ought to be in the top five for sure. This is a do, you know well-documented event. Uh, and your book has uh, well, we should mention it's uh, it has pictures, so you can see who the who you're talking about, newspaper clippings, and an extensive appendix appendices with uh, the uh, a, a directory of cases and. Oh, there was something else good in there. What else did you have? <laughs> <laughs> I had a lot of good stuff. I want to say one thing. One of the people that reviewed one of my earlier books was was mad there weren't enough pictures. And I'm thinking the point is not the pictures. So there's there's plenty of pictures in there, and and, and documentation as well from from the Air Force files and things like that, showing exactly what was said and who said what, and and documenting it all that way, so we can see where we are on that. It also lists. Um, the source material so that you can see if I say something that the, the sheriff said he saw a uh, football shaped object brightly glowing red. Where did that information come from? Well, that came from this newspaper, and that newspaper and uh, a lot of things like that as well. So you can go look that newspaper up and see if I re- if I reported precisely what they said. But there's also a long as you said, an appendix that lists uh, cases of electromagnetic effects. Most of them deal with um, car engines, but there's other manifestations of the electromagnetic effects. And I, I have a, a number of those as well, you know, knocking radio stations off the air, uh, interference or, or disturbing animals in cases like that. So there's that sort of thing in the first case of electromagnetic effects reported was from 1909. Let's do our break here. More to come with Kevin, Jean, and Kurt Turin. The Paracast. Thank you for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Complement your health with hemp-derived cannabinoid oil. We've always believed that the closer to Earth, the better it is for our bodies. Our hemp-derived cannabinoid oil is phytocannabinoid-rich, full-spectrum, and organically grown. Finally, hemp made easy, clean, and effective. GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. That's right, we cut through the red tape. It's now available at GCNHemp.com or call 877-878-4203. Are you curious about what might be missing from your diet and supplement choices? Take a free health assessment to identify your possible nutrient deficiencies. As a certified holistic health coach, I will help you assess and prioritize a supplement program based on Dr. Wallach's recommendations. Call Linda at 833-VITAL90. That number to call is 833-848-2590. That's 833-VITAL90. USA Radio News with Wendy King. 
The government is now sending weaponry to Ukraine as part of the first shipment of security assistance to defend against a possible Russian invasion. President Biden recently directed the shipment, which arrived in Ukraine on Friday night. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov in Geneva, Switzerland. Both agreed to continue talking, but didn't reach any other agreements. Blinken was aiming to de-escalate the tensions near Ukraine's eastern border, where Russia has amassed around 150,000 troops, according to estimates, and Lavrov sought guarantees that Ukraine wouldn't be allowed to join NATO, which Russia says would pose a security threat. Lavrov said on Friday that Russia has no immediate plans to attack Ukraine. This is USA Radio News. A winter storm is bringing significant ice and snow to portions of the southeast and mid-Atlantic coast. It's been causing major travel disruptions. Residents are not out of the woods as a blast of Arctic air will bring the threat for a rapid freeze-up. Ice and snow hampered travel in cities like Raleigh, North Carolina, where a Delta Airlines flight skidded off the runway at Raleigh-Durham International Airport on Friday night. Meteorologists are saying watch out for ice as temperatures are going to drop overnight. There are warnings out in cities from Salisbury, Maryland to Norfolk, Virginia, and even into northern South Carolina. The rapid freezing overnight could cause major travel delays with ice building up on the roadways. Also, major airports in the area are expecting flight delays and cancellations due to the storm. You're listening to USA Radio News. Life can be full of risks. One thing you shouldn't take a risk with ever is your family's health insurance. If you're self-employed or you now need affordable health insurance, you need to make this free call right now and see how the health insurance helpline can help you get it. We specialize in helping the self-employed and people just like you that need affordable health insurance to get it. We have short and long-term health insurance plans and some even cover dental, vision, and prescription drugs. Don't take a risk with your family health insurance, it's not worth it. If you're self-employed or now need affordable health insurance, call right now and learn for free how to get it. Listen, affordable health insurance plans for everyone just like you are a free phone call away. So give us a shout right now. 800-670-0946. 800-670-0946. 800-670-0946. That's 800-670-0946. This is Micah Hanks of the Grayling Report, and you're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. We are back with Kevin Randall, longtime UFO investigator, talking about Leveland, his new book published by Flying Disc Press. Kirk Collins, you had a question. Yes. So uh, you mentioned the press given Saucedo, is that his name, that they were ridiculing his name. So tell us what was the uh, this term, what, Nick? What was that all about? In October of 1957, the Soviets launched their first artificial satellite, Sputnik. And then coincidentally, on November 2nd, they launched their second one with the dog on board, uh, another Sputnik. So they were using the term what, Nick, to kind of ridicule the idea of the flying saucer they or 
using those sorts of terms to to ridicule. I know in 1947, for example, there was a headline from Kansas that said, flying saucers now seen in 38 states except Kansas. And the joke was Kansas was a dry state, meaning they didn't have legal sales of alcohol. And so they didn't have drunks seeing these things in the sky. So when you look at terms like what, Nick, or what is it, or how they put all those things together, it's it's kind of a term to belittle it a little bit and, and make it sound like it's a bunch of rubes seeing something that they can't identify or rubes making up things or seeing, having hallucinations, that kind of thing. It's a way of kind of ridiculing the whole idea. Yeah, I think they, they were also trying to play it off as that the public was space crazy, too. You have to understand that the idea of the Sputnik uh, kind of grabbed attention when, when the Soviets launched the thing. But by the time you get to November 2nd, it's been a month. And so that kind of craze is over. So now they've got they've, they've put up the, the, uh, the Sputnik with the dog, but nobody knew it because the news hadn't been released around the world at that time. So it, when, you, when you kind of suggest it's a hysteria on the parts of the, the people of Leveland, you have to ask yourself two questions. Had they really heard about the second launch of the Sputnik? And two, why is it only Leveland at that particular time that's having this problem? Yeah, it kind of spreads out from there. I think that the peak of the wave, if I remember correctly, was like November 6. So it peaked very quickly and then dropped off. But uh, you had an awful lot of the sightings where you had the, the cars being uh, stalled. If you go back a little bit further in history to 19, the 1954, there's an awful lot of these kinds of sightings in France and South America, but they didn't get a good lot of play in the United States because it's France and South America. And so it's kind of a new phenomenon with the, with the stalling of the car engines or the interaction with the UFOs in that respect in the United States in 1957. But, but there is a historical precedent set in France and South America. And that, that is covered in the book as well, showing how those sightings differed somewhat from the sightings in the United States and the reporting of it and the, and the response of the local police and the local governments uh, to those sorts of sightings as opposed to the way the United States Air Force uh, reacted to them. You know, I have one quick question which always occurs to me with these EM effects. And I'm considering what we saw in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. In the real world, the UFO comes close the car engine stalls or whatever, does it spontaneously start up after the UFO leaves or do they have to manually restart the car? Well, that's a question that nobody's really asked. One of the reasons the Condon Committee rejected the idea of these electromagnetic effects is, is because they knew of no physical law that would allow the engine to restart spontaneously. They could understand how a very strong magnetic field could suppress the engine, but they knew of no way that it would start spontaneously. And that was one of the things I looked at is going through all these sorts of um, cases. How many people said the engine started spontaneously? And a few did. But most of the cases, the, the driver had to take some action to restart the car. I think in, in Leveland, there was one case where the guy said that he he insisted, I think it was James Long, insisted that he had started the car, but the others say when the UFO left, then the car uh, the car could be started, or I started the car. So there's, there's a limited number of cases where it is reported it started spontaneously, but in the majority of them, the drivers took some action to get the car to start. There was, uh, uh, now your book 
touches on a number of other topics. Uh, you know, it ought, probably ought to be called Level on Leveland and Beyond. But um, so there was a, a couple of sections in there about UFO detectors. Now, of course, you know, can't give away everything in the book, but give us a taste of what that's about. I think Jim Lorenzen, in talking to some other people and, and realizing there was a strong magnetic field associated with some UFO sightings, decided that uh, you could use that to detect a UFO. So he he created, uh, I think, with a, with a number of other people. Jim was something of an engineer and created a metal detector, which more or less is a magnetometer. So that if there was a presence of a strong magnetic field, the detector would go off and you could run outside and see if there was a flying saucer. Uh, Fran Ridge, who runs an ICAP site, has taken it a step further and created uh, a system of uh, stations, what he calls nodes, around the country. And they use a number of different sensors to detect UFOs, not only uh, magnetism, but um, you know, uh, compass deviations and other other changes to the environment that might suggest some kind of a of a UFO coming by, and then they collect that data uh, electronically or collect that data uh, without human intervention, and then compare those node alerts against sighting reports in the area, and they find some some correlations. Not as many as I would have thought, but they do find some correlations between a sighting. Uh, of a UFO that's reported independently and a detection alert from one of the the nodes one of the nodes nearby i had suggested that they make sure make sure that the the operators of the nodes have a camera handy to take photographs and run outside and take photographs and i also suggested that maybe they could set up a network around their node of people that if they get a detection they could go outside and look and you could end up with photographs from separate locations sort of independently taken uh i thought that was a brilliant idea on my part but of course fran ridge had already thought of that so <laughs> uh, i think he gets credit for that as well but i mean that's one of the things they're doing that kind of leads us back to avi loeb because when i was talking to avi loeb about this and he was talking about wanting instrumentality to uh, detect the alien artifacts without human assistance in that because it would make the data uh, much more precise, I suppose. I mentioned this sort of thing and he just didn't want to deal with UFOs and he was a, I think he felt that the collection of the data wouldn't be as scientifically rigorous as what they would set up to try to detect these objects moving through our solar system. But I thought it was a great idea and, and Fran Ridge has been working on this for years um, setting up these nodes not only around the United States but in some other countries as well in an attempt to detect uh, detect UFOs. So they're using some of the observations made at, at level land, of course, but other areas to design this sensor arrays and to detect the UFOs uh, passing close to the nodes. I always think, though, if they set up these UFO detectors, what will happen is the UFOs will go elsewhere. Well, that suggests that there's some kind of spying on the human race by the UFOs. They've had some luck with that, um, detecting things that are cross-correlated with, with UFO sightings. They, they do get, the detectors do go off periodically 
when there's nothing around, I mean, it, there's something else triggers one of the other sensors, and they're well aware of that thing, and they're always working to calibrate things more precisely to get, get it directly toward the UFOs. But I don't think there's any real evidence that the UFOs would go somewhere else. And besides that, they're be, the, the nodes are becoming somewhat ubiquitous. I think in the book there's a map of where some where the nodes are, and they're pretty much all over the United States. Yeah, there's great gaps in, in where they are, but they're always putting up new new nodes elsewhere and recalibrating the information and recalibrating the systems to make sure that the information collected is as scientifically precise as it can be. We'll be more than scientific and precise because we have Kevin Randall and we have Kurt Collins. I'm Gene Steinberg. I never claim to be a scientist and I won't say what I am because people will dispute it. Seriously, you're in the Paracast. For listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. If you're concerned about the power grid and want to generate your own supply of off-grid electricity, this will be the most important message you'll hear this year. Here's why. We now have a small number of solar generators back in stock. These emergency backup systems provide life-saving backup power when you need it most. And unlike gas generators, solar generators run quietly, emit no dangerous fumes, and produce an endless supply of free electricity from the sun. Whether it's wildfires, dangerous weather, power grid issues, or just getting off the grid, you'll never have to suffer through painful power outages again. Even better, all this week, radio listeners get over $700 in free off-the-grid bonuses, too. Go to MySolarBackup.com to learn more and check availability. That's MySolarBackup.com. Look for the free report, Crisis Cooling, how to make absolutely sure your meat, milk, and medicines stay safe and cool in any power outage. Yours free at MySolarBackup.com. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? $92,000. Ouch. The IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called federal tax management. You could just tell they knew what they were talking about. Right then and there, I felt like I had some hope. Stop the liens, levies, and garnishments fast and qualify for one of several special IRS programs that could reduce or even eliminate your tax debt. So, how did it go for Jake? They did what they said they would do. They came through for me. I ended up saving an unbelievable amount. I was so jazzed. (laughs) I was extremely happy. If you owe more than $10,000 in back taxes... 
Take Jake's advice. Give Federal Tax Management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the Federal Tax Management Hotline now. 800-503-8625. Extendivite really works. Here are some reviews from Amazon.com. John Hess, 5 out of 5 stars. Awesome. Probably my only review, but at age 40, I was getting bad heart throb and left arm pain, mainly before bed. I even stopped smoking and drinking sodas for a month, and that didn't work. After one day of taking Extendivite, it was gone and hasn't returned in three years. I've ordered Extendivite 13 times, so Amazon just said. Juliet Hordick. I've ordered this product before in liquid form. It is fantastic. My whole family's been on it. To order, call 1-877-928-8822. That's 1-877-928-8822. Or visit our website at heartdrop.com. Extend your life with Extend Overnight. This is me, the Merciless. You are listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio, exactly according to my plan. We continue. Kevin Randall, he is the author of a new book on Leveland, but it's not just about that one case, but about other sightings with similar details. He will also be back for after the power cast where we might just ask him about yet another roswell book but not now now after the power cast by the way is an exclusive feature of the power cast plus we also offer this show free of the network ads with higher quality audio and it's all available if you check out the paracast.plus once again visit the paracast.plus for quick sign up instructions Kurt, you had a question. Yeah, let's give him a hard time. So now most of the book is about very credible cases and probably things you could present to the scientists, but there are a couple of cases in there with electromagnetic effects that involved UFO occupant sightings. And I was kind of surprised to see those in there. So what can you, uh, what can you say about those and how credible do you think they are? Most of the sightings where we get the occupants involved are foreign sightings from France and from uh South America. And th- that becomes problematic when you start talking about the, the occupants with the creatures. But if you're going to suggest that there's a f- flying saucer from another planet here, and it's getting close enough to the ground to land, you're going to have to expect that you get some sighting reports of, of the UFO occupants. And I find you know, I, those sightings um, to be credible as well, especially when there's multiple witnesses to it. Some of them, you know, single witness or, or just two or three witnesses, but some of them are multiple witness to the to the UFO or to to the occupants. And then there's there's some sightings in there that involve the reactions of animals to the UFOs as well. So I I, I wanted to look at the whole thing and present present as much of the data as I could, and it's kind of a. a, a I get maybe a tribute to Len Stringfield in talking to Len Stringfield back when he was collecting his sighting reports of crash retrievals, as he called them. Um, I asked him sort of a similar question, and he said that he didn't have a time to investigate all of the cases, but he thought if he put the information out there, that others would become interested in it and would take that information and 
continue on the investigation and maybe find something more, uh, taking it in another direction. I looked at those cases from a number of sources that, uh, uh, such as Jacques Vallée's earlier books on UFOs and that sort of thing. I mean, Jacques Vallée's books, I looked at Mark Rodiker's work on vehicle interference cases and that sort of thing. So I looked at a lot of that sort of thing to to look at the cases, but I thought it important to to report on the reactions of people to um, uh, seeing the, the, the creatures as well. Now, there, there, there was a sighting in Brooksville, Florida, by a guy named, uh, I want to say James Reese, but that doesn't sound right. Anyhow, he, he reported seeing a, an object on the ground and the occupant on it and looked like he took a picture of him. You know, there was a flash at the guy's chest and he thought they were taking photographs. Reese's sightings are problematic but the the thing is i happened to be in brooksville florida not long after those sightings took place because uh, i was in uh, at fort rucker in flight school and we would get by the time we got toward the end of flight school we got the weekends off and uh, a couple of friends of mine and i went down to brooksville florida to talk about this sort of thing we talked to a deputy sheriff's deputy sheriff down there and what he told me was that the papers that Reeves found laying on the ground with a strange writing on it uh, was given to the Air Force, and and the papers that the Air Force brought back were not the same. That they had, um, the Air Force had faked the papers, and the deputy told me that they had cut a small corner off one of the papers, and they touched a match to it, and it flared up like flash paper. And the papers brought back didn't do that. So now I've got a I've got a case where we've got a a. a, a fellow with not the most credible background um, reporting an occupant sighting with landing traces and these papers and you think well we can write this whole thing off because the guy was a loon but then you learn that the sheriff's deputies that investigated it, it, thought he was somewhat more credible and you see some more manip manipulation by the government with the evidence so you know you've got to take a look at all of that so you know i looked at the cases and i there were some i just ignored because I just could not find them credible. But the ones I put in the book were the ones I found interesting enough that I, I, I thought they should be included. Let me ask you a question here. Going into this project, and I know you've been chasing footnotes for years trying to go back into citing reports, especially older ones, to try to get the accurate facts. Was there anything about all this that surprised you, that changed your expectations? The surprising thing was to find evidence of the Air Force officers being involved. Because if you, you look at the information that had passed from the past, what people wrote about and that sort of thing, the Air Force role is obscured. Yeah, we knew about the investigator coming in from, from Colorado Springs, and, and the newspapers reported on the provost marshal from Reese Air Force Base being out with working with the sheriff. I did not expect to find limited evidence of, of um, Air Force participation on the night of the sightings, that they were out there and probably close enough to have their cars, car engine stalled. That was surprising and finding some of those things and looking at the, um, uh, the information that was available on these sightings through all kinds of sources. Uh, the Air Force, for example, said that the um, Weather in, in Level Land that night was rainy and drizzly and, and not all that great with a low ceiling. But included in the report is a, is a weather report 
from one of the weather reporting stations saying that by the time you end up with the sightings, the weather was clear. The, the, the rain was gone. There was no drizzle. The clouds, the cloud cover was like four-tenths of the sky. And the, those of you who are pilots know when you say the cloud cover is four-tenths, it doesn't mean they're all at the same level. So um, it's not like four-tenths of the sky was obscured. It's different layers and that sort of thing. So you had a, a good view of the sky that night as well. So those sorts of things were surprising. And some of the things I found in the Air Force file that contradicted other things in the Air Force file were surprising because I know that they, they sort of sanitized these things before they uh, put them out. And I also know that they, they also thought they believed at the time that they were making the files, 1957 for, for Levon, for example, that none of us would ever see them. They, they would be locked away in a cabinet or destroyed at some point. We'd never see them. So I was surprised at some of the things I found in the Air Force file that contradicted other things in the Air Force file. For example, in one place, as I mentioned, the Air Force said, well, only three people saw the, uh, saw the object. But in another place, the, the file talks about five people seeing the object. So they, they kind of contradicted themselves in, that, uh, in, the, in the file as well and, and looking at that sort of thing. So uh, the other thing that surprised me was when we get over to the White Sand sighting in Oro Grande with, with James Stokes, um, the Air Force interviewed three of the MPs who saw the UFO. The fourth, fourth MP was not available, and they said he'd gone on a three-day pass. And I'm thinking, excuse me, he went on a three-day pass? You, you've given him a three-day pass here after he's been involved in this UFO thing, and you know the Air Force is coming? And there's some information that suggests the guy was in the hospital because he had been burned by the close approach of the UFO. And we had Stokes, you know, talking about a slight rash that he developed because of the UFO. So we have that sort of thing. I don't know why the other guy didn't develop a rash. But we Going have back to Stokes for a second. All right, so yes. he developed a slight rash. Any indication of any other physical effects? Well, his car engine stalled. Well, I'm, th- then- I'm not thinking of the car engine. I'm thinking in terms of his own self. No, no. The only thing, the only thing was it was described as a light sunburn, a reddening of the skin, and 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 it, and and if you remember Close Encounters of the Third Kind, when when uh, Dreyfus was in his pickup truck, one of his arms got burned and half of his face got sunburned. That's kind of what Stokes was. He had a, a reddening of the skin on one arm and part of his face. By the time the Air Force got around to talk to him, that had all faded away. That so he had no subsequent physical no. effects, or at least nothing was mentioned. No, no. And, and he was a friend of the Lorenzans and had there been subsequent uh, physical manifestations, whatever they might have been, uh, Coral Lorenzen would have reported on that, and she never did. You see, when you go through Levelin and other cases, I kind of get the impression that Major Donald Kehoe, because in his books I first learned about this, wasn't really a terribly crack investigator. You know, a lot of his... Reports in the books were anecdotes, lots of conversations back and forth that he remembered and wrote it like a Pulp Fiction novel. And he didn't probe deeply enough into any of these things. We get the surface details. We get the details about the fact that he and the Air Force disagreed about the number of witnesses, things like that. But he didn't delve real deep into any of this that I recall. I mean, it's a lot of years since I read his books, but I don't recall him being a really crack investigator. We've got Kurt, we've got Kevin, both crack investigators, and we've got Gene, who asks the questions. You're in the Paracast. 
you for listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Attack of the Rockoids has been well-received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space. But the dreams turn out to be true and thrust him into a telepathic love affair with a woman whose faraway planet is intent on destroying the Earth. And now the gripping tale continues in The Coming of the Protectors. It's the second book of the Rockoids trilogy, a galaxy-spanning adventure that pits our hapless heroes against powerful, fanatical enemies that threaten the lives of freedom-loving beings everywhere. Attack of the Rockoids and The Coming of the Protectors, classic science fiction at its best, available now. For more details, visit rockoids.com. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com. Hi, Peter Vaccaro for ParanormalDate.com. Are you looking for love in all the wrong places? Now you have a chance to change that by signing up for free at ParanormalDate.com. This incredible dating site puts people of like minds together. People who are interested in the strange, the unusual, mysteries, ghosts, UFOs, and the afterlife, and so much more. ParanormalDate.com was developed for you, people seeking a viable alternative to the other dating services. You can join for free by going to ParanormalDate.com, and if you decide you like it and want to connect with people, use the code GEORGE for a substantial discount. Mark Rawlings, president of ParanormalDate.com, says so many people hunger to share their experiences about the paranormal, the unexplainable, or the afterlife, and so much more, and this is the source for them to meet and share that common interest. So sign up for free at ParanormalDate.com, ParanormalDate.com, and use the code GEORGE if you decide to connect with someone you like. Welcome back to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. And now, here's Gene Steinberg. I don't know if you knew Major Keogh or not, Kevin, but was that your perception? I didn't get the impression. The more I hear about him in latter years, although I met him a few times, that he wasn't that great an investigator. Back and I forget the years. The Australians started doing UFO investigations. They created a military organization to investigate UFOs. And what the first thing they did was their Air Force officers contacted our Air Force officers, and they asked about Don Kehoe. And the Air Force officers, yeah, you can't believe what the guy says. It's, it's all made up. It's all hearsay. He just didn't do a good job. And the Australian Air Force kind of backed off from their investigation based on that analysis of Kehoe's work. What you find out later is that a lot of stuff that Air, that Kehoe said in his books turned out to be true. And that kind of annoyed the, the Australians because they had been led down this primrose path by our Air Force officers um, suggesting Kehoe wasn't all that good. And you're right. They did an awful lot of anecdotal research. But then the next question becomes, when does anecdotal observation become scientific observation? Do you have to have a scientific degree to make credible observations of a phenomenon that you have witnessed? And how is the information gathered? And I think that Kehoe's role morphed from 
kind of chiding the Air Force and advocating for congressional investigations and that sort of thing, morphed into directing the, the directing NICAP and away from the investigations. The investigation was left to the other NICAP members. Uh, and there was an ICAP member who was in, in Level Land, and a lot of his investigations made it into the NICAP files on the topic as well. So Kehoe, uh, I, I, you know, I think that's kind of a misnomer that he wasn't, he wasn't real good at the investigation. I think that his attention got diverted, but a lot of the information he put in his books was accurate. Sometimes he misinterpreted the, misinterpreted the information, and I think specifically on the uh, Mantell incident, that was the your National Guard pilot was killed chasing a UFO in 1948. And Kehoe, in his book, mentions that the object was seen over one of these Kentucky towns at a certain time, and it was seen over another Kentucky town at a, a later time. And if you measure the distance and divide it by the time, you find out the, the, the object was flying at 200 miles an hour. But what I discovered was if you take a look at the directions the people were reporting the object. It was actually between the two towns. It was probably at 80,000 feet. And what you have is a report when it was first sighted in those towns, which may not be a relevant time. So it wasn't traveling at 200 miles an hour. It could have been traveling at 10 or 12 miles an hour. It's based on when the object was seen and where it was when it was seen. And so he drew a conclusion based on his interpretation of the information that was incorrect. But that I think that, you know, we all can make those sorts of investigative mistakes if we're not careful with our research or we're, we're pushing for an agenda. And sometimes too often, the reporting is is agenda-driven. I looked for the best information I could find, and that was kind of how Chasing Footnotes was created, was I would uh, um, look at a, a sighting, and I would see how far back I could go. I would chase the footnotes in books. Where did it come from? And go from book to book to book until I could find the original source, and if I could get to the original source, I could compare it with what was said in these subsequent books, and oftentimes it didn't bear much of a resemblance. Frank Edwards, for example, talked about a uh, sighting in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, by a railroad engineer that was in, reported in the newspapers prior to Kenneth Arnold reporting his flying saucers, his discs. And I was very interested in this because I wanted a sighting that did not rely on Arnold, that predated Arnold by a few days, talking about... Uh, a disc-shaped object, because I thought that would be in interesting uh, or, or information important to countering some, what some of the skeptics were saying. And I followed that information as far as I could, and I finally found the article in the Cedar Rapids Gazette, and it turned out the sighting wasn't in Cedar Rapids. It was in Peoria, Illinois. And it, although he said he made the sighting on the afternoon of June 24th, it wasn't reported until like June 27th or June 28th, so it did not meet the criterion I was I was looking for. And so Edwards' information was substantially correct, but it wasn't in the newspaper on the afternoon that I wanted it to be. And, he's, and, and Edwards had said you can read it in the newspaper uh, on June 24th, and it wasn't there. So, uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that you have to look for. But sometimes you can only go so far and you have to you have to give up the trail. I, Kurt, I'm sure you know about that in, in your flying saucers that uh, time forgot. There's so many instances where uh, it's it's uh, a game of telephone. Things are repeated over and over and sometimes without 
any malice or intent to deceive, just rewording something, you add a shading and it just carries it further and further from the truth. And, And so many... Well, we'll just call them poor researchers because honestly, that's what they are. They'll rely on the previous printed version. It's basically copy and paste journalism, and and it just takes us into really inaccurate territory. Well, I think a lot of the people writing UFO books look at another UFO book and pick, pull the case out of there, and they don't they don't go to the original source. They well, they figure this guy must have looked at it, and so they assume that he's researched it to its very end, so his information is accurate. One of the things that happened was when I was writing Crash, when UFOs fall from the sky, and I was looking at the Del Rio crash, which I think a lot of us believed uh, when it first came out, because here's an Air Force officer, high-ranking Air Force officer, Colonel, telling about his involvement with this crash of a flying saucer near Del Rio, Texas in, in 1948. And there's an affidavit that he signed laying this whole thing out. And so when I got to um, writing Crash... I uh, thought, well, let's see what the Internet says. And I found out there was a book by Noah Torres and uh, Ruben Yarte called uh, The Other Roswell. And this was the Del Rio craze. And it was Robert Willingham. And I talked to I talked to Noah Torres mostly about, about this. And I said, you guys looked at his background. I said, oh, yeah, his background's solid. And it's, we've, got his, we've got his documentation. But they hadn't verified the documentation. They had pictures of him in the 1960s in Air Force uniforms. And they said, well, we'll send you the pictures. And they did. And I looked at the uniform. I said, that's not an Air Force uniform. That's a Civil Air Patrol uniform. That's a completely different kettle of fish. In fact, on my blog, I actually have pictures of him in that uniform. And you can, and he's wearing the metal plate on the uniform that Civil Air Patrol officers wore. It says Civil Air Patrol official auxiliary of the Air Force. I mean, it's right on his uniform. And he's wearing a CAP instead of a U.S. or the insignia, the rank insignia on both sides. So he wasn't an Air Force, high-ranking Air Force officer. And I got his records from uh, St. Louis. He'd spent 13 months in the, Air For- uh, in the military. He'd been in the Army and got out of the Army as an E-4. And he said he was a World War II veteran, which was technically correct, because he joined the Army in December of 1945. And everybody knows the shooting stopped in, in Europe in, 19, in, in May of 1945 and in the Pacific in uh, September of 1945. But he was technically a, vet, a veteran of World War II because if you served up until 1946, the middle of 1946, the war was declared officially over. So at that point... Um, anybody who served in that period that time as well were considered veterans of World War II. And it, it, the whole story just com- completely began to fall apart because uh, uh, 1948 wasn't the right um, year for it. Although I found in Skylook, which is a precursor to Muf- the MUFON Journal, uh, I think it's March of 19... 19- 1968, there's a paragraph about Willingham seeing a crashed flying saucer, giving it in 1948. So I actually found the original article. Um, Len Stringfield talked about it, but then we see they've changed the date to December of 1950, and it's um, um, El Indio, uh, uh, Guerrero El Indio, Mexico, where the thing is found. And then when I talked to Willingham, he made it 1954, 1955, something like that. But his original documents didn't bear him out. He wasn't an Air Force officer. He wasn't a fighter pilot. He had told me that um, he got out of the Air Force because he was injured in Korea. He never served in Korea, but he was injured in Korea and they wouldn't let him fly, fly anymore, fighters anymore. So he, he got out and got in the Air Guard where he could fly fighters. Well, I was in the... Um, 
Army National Guard at the time, and we were working closely with a lot of guys from the Air National Guard, and I knew a bunch of fighter pilots, and I asked them about it. And they said they could think of no injury that would disqualify him from flying fighters. we got more to come. Trying to chase some footnotes here with Kevin, Gene, and Kurt. You're in the Paracast. Do you need a website? Well, you can get a great deal on hosting services with Namecheap's legendary coupon code. They're offering substantial hosting discounts on shared hosting, business hosting, VPS hosting, reseller hosting, and even dedicated servers. Namecheap is preferred by millions. It's backed by a money-back guarantee. Use the coupon code LEGENDARY to cash in on the special deal at Namecheap.com, Namecheap.com. First came Attack of the Rockoids, and it was a critically acclaimed success. And now there is the coming of the Protectors. A former military intelligence man is contacted by a space woman in a dream. A dream that turns out to be a nightmare, because evil forces on our distant planet are planning to conquer the Earth. This is gripping science fiction of the classic kind. Attack of the Rockoids and the coming of the Protectors. Find out more at Rockoids.com. That's Rockoids, R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S, dot com. No matter if supply lines are down, product deliveries are slow, and that most everything costs more these days. You still have neck and shoulder pain, right? Good news. Sunny Bay has new products that target neck and shoulder pain. Products that are in stock now, ready to ship anywhere now. Like our extra long neck heating pads. They provide soothing relief to painful sore necks and backs. You can heat them in a microwave oven, and they come in a variety of colors and patterns. And for stress relief, get our lavender-scented hands-free neck wraps. Or maybe you need one of our smaller lower back wraps. Great for seniors. Again, there's no shipping delays from Sunny Bay. Find our new products on Amazon, Walmart, Etsy, and sunny-bay.com. Just search for Sunny Bay Neck Wraps. All our products are great for men or women, are reusable, and easy to clean. Remember, just search for Sunny Bay Neck Wraps. Order now because stock is high and shipping is fast from Sunny Bay. G'day, I'm Jamel that works with Dr. Joel Wallach and the GCN team with Longevity at teamg'day.com. By becoming an associate, you provide income for you and your family on your own hours while working from home. So contact me, Jamel, by filling in the contact box at teamg'day.com and I will get back to you personally and provide all the support you need to get started and build your Longevity business. Teamg'day.com. Teamg'day.com. Stop aging now. Restore those joints. Boost your strength because it's official. Nutramedical has released the most exciting, powerful anti-aging supplement on the market. Dr. Bill Deagle's Red Deer Velvet DR has been approved by the U.S. Patent Office. Imagine stem cell rejuvenation all in one capsule without huge expense. Dr. Bill MD discovered that as an unborn baby grows in the mother's womb, he or she does not deteriorate or physically age. Red Deer Velvet DR, like the uterus, provides 300 biomolecules and six hormones protected in one special DR capsule that delivers lipid packages directly into your circulation. This patented technology bypasses the stomach and is released into the small bowel unaltered by digestive enzymes and stomach acid. Remember, Red Deer Velvet DR. Improve endurance, stimulate your immune system, increase learning ability, and even improve sexual libido with Red Deer Velvet DR. Click NutriMedical.com. That's N-U-T-R-I Medical.com. Or call toll-free 888-212-8871 and get on the road to a newer, rejuvenated, happier you. 
A lot can happen in six seconds. A rodeo ride, a dramatic basketball win, and the world record holder can solve a Rubik's Cube. Six seconds is how long it takes for an 18-wheeler traveling at a safe speed to come to a complete stop. And in those six seconds, that truck will travel the length of two football fields. So please, give them room. Never cut in front of a large truck for any reason. Our roads, our responsibility. Learn more at sharetheroadsafely.gov. We'd like to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our famous Paracast community forums at forum.theparacast.com. So you're tracking down this guy's claims yeah, about his service? He, Go on, please. Yeah, he said that he they, they took him out of fighters on active duty because of his injuries, but they allowed him to fly fighters in the Air National Guard. And the, the guys I talked to said, no, the problem was he could have become a bomber pilot, not a bomber pilot because there's some ejection seats there. He could, he could have been a, 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 a um, transport pilot. But the problem was in the fighters, it was the ejection seat. And if he couldn't qualify in the ejection seat in the um, active service, he wouldn't be flying in the uh, the guard as a, a pilot as well. So his story broke down because of what he was saying about those sort of things. He wasn't a pilot. I could find no record that he was a pilot other than a private pilot. And that was one of the other things that kind of got my attention. I know every military pilot I've ever talked to who has an FAA license, and I have one, is a commercial, at least a commercial pilot's license. Because when we got out of flight school, we had 210 hours of flight time. And we were told as we were going on leave that if we waited a day, we could take an FAA examination it's 50 question on federal regulations. We would have classes and then we'd take the test and we would be issued a commercial pilot's license. Willingham had a private pilot's license. There is no way that a military pilot is going to have a, a private pilot's license. He would go for the commercial pilot's license. When I got out of the Army and I came home, I was on my way to visit relatives and I stopped off at the FAA office in Des Moines, Iowa and took my 50 question test. Barely passed it, but I did, and got my commercial pilot's license. There was no way that a, a military pilot is going to only have a pilot pilot's license. I looked up his private pilot's license on the uh, FAA website, which you can't do anymore because of privacy issues, but I was able to find that out. So the whole story broke down, but the point is, you know, chasing the information to the very end and seeing what you can find and seeing how credible the sources are. That's important to do when we're talking about this stuff. And, and oftentimes the guys writing books at one end, they believe the others have, have done the research and they believe the information is accurate and they're only interested in producing the book and not really doing the investigations. That makes for kind of a sad situation there where you're giving repetition to repetition. And I think when you talk about the original version being corrupted through generation and generation of magazine article, the book, the book, the book, etc., this old joke, I guess Steve Allen used to do it on his show, where he brings up several people from the audience. He tells the first person, quietly whispering in his ear a joke and then that person in turn repeats the joke to the second person whispers it by the time you get to number five or number ten the joke doesn't work has nothing to do with the original 
It's going through all these generations. And you think about all these people writing, and then a book goes through an editor, and they change a few words here and there to clean things up, and you can see where something gets corrupted, even if it wasn't intended to be corrupted. Well, I think the other problem you have is people believe that the books are fact-checked, and they rarely are fact-checked. The only person doing the fact-check is the writer of it. You have a copy editor, and she or he is making sure that the information tracks properly, that you didn't say up here it was 1954 and down here you said it was 1955 or something like that, correlating that sort of information, but they're not seeing if if the information is correct. I got into an argument with an editor on one of my books about Vietnam. One of the characters in the book had an M79 grenade launcher, and he said, well, they didn't have those in Vietnam. And I said, well, how do you know that? And he said, well, I've got a friend, and he told me they didn't have those in Vietnam. I said, well, I'm kind of surprised because uh, my roommate in, in Vietnam, he had an M79 grenade launcher. I don't know what you're talking about. I had a, a friend from flight school who was injured uh, <laughs> stupidly by himself, uh, was firing an M79 in Vietnam, and he kept elevating the barrel to see how far he could launch it, and it hit wires overhead, and the ground detonated at that point and threw shrapnel on them. So he was he was kind of cut up by that sort of thing, but... You know, the editors don't always know everything, and an awful lot of time there is no real fact-checking going on. That's left to the writer to do the the initial fact-check. So if you're just putting together a book. In fact, I had an interview with a guy named Peter Strasberg, and and Kurt, I meant to talk to you about this yesterday, who wrote a book about Einstein going to Roswell. And in the book, he had a bunch of information that he thought supported the idea uh, about that, and it was uh, the MJ-12 stuff. He thought that that proved that Einstein had gone to Roswell, and I kept asking him about, well, didn't you do this? Didn't you do that? And he said, well, I found it on the Internet. I thought, it, I thought it looked good, and I just put it in the book for people to see. And I said, well, if you vetted the information at all, you would have realized that those documents you've presented in your book are bogus. They're fraudulent. It wasn't the original MJ-12 documents and some of the later stuff that came out. And I would ask him questions about the depth of his research into this. And he said, well, I, I, I just, you know, this, I put it together for the entertainment of my, my patients. Um, you know, I didn't do a lot of research, and I think a lot of books end up that way. We're going we're gonna to exploit the interest in the topic right now, and you call up some guy and say, can you write a book about flying saucers? And I said, sure, and he grabs a bunch of books and, and newspaper articles, and he throws the book together, and he doesn't bother to check to see if the information is out of date or if it's, if it's changed. And that was kind of what led me to the Willingham stuff. I was checking to see if the information that we had from the 1970s about Willingham was accurate, and I found out it was not. And, and, and so I think that's part of the problem we run into. But when you take a look at the books, not a lot of fact-checking goes on. And in today's environment, you now have fact-checkers whose personal bias get in the way of the facts. You know, they don't want to believe something, so they, they say this is factually false, and it may not be factually false. So we have to run, we have to run that gambit as well, or gauntlet as well. Uh, that's a lot to digest, but yeah, there's a lot of a lot of hoaxes get repeated the same way. Now, you just mentioned two things I wanted to ask you about. So, which one do you want to deal with first, Vietnam or MJ-12? Well, what about Vietnam? We'll go with that first. Okay. Well, so we know you already had an interest in UFOs, and there have been numerous reports of unidentified, mysterious aircraft, helicopters, or otherwise. I'm just wondering, as your time is in Vietnam as a pilot. Did you see or hear anything about UFOs? Uh, no, I did not hear anything about UFOs. My grandmother actually sent me a copy of Frank Edwards' Flying Saucer Serious Business while I was there because she knew about my interest in UFOs. Uh, the only thing that came close is 
there was a French Alouette helicopter. wasn't wasn't ours. wasn't uh, any of any of our allies, and uh, we chased it back into Cambodia. But that was a real life helicopter, not anything mysterious. It was, I think, North Vietnamese. I saw nothing in Vietnam about UFOs or anything like that. And the same thing in, in, in Iraq. I understand there were some sightings. I had access to the intelligence, all the intelligence reports that were going on through a classified Internet connection. And I never saw anything about UFOs. Had I, had I seen anything, I would have noted it, but I didn't see anything. And, of course, we were looking for things a lot closer to the ground in UFOs, but I didn't see anything in Iraq either. I know others have claimed to have seen things, and I know people have told wild stories about their uh, experiences with UFOs in Vietnam, but I just had nothing like that happen to me. Well, that, that before going on to the MJ-12, that, that makes me want to ask this question. Do you think that there have been sightings that have been maybe overhyped as UFOs that were really unidentified aircraft. Before you answer that question, Kevin Randall, author of a new book on Leveland, published by Flying Disc Press, and we're now talking about a lot of ancillary topics with Kurt Collins, our guest co-host. You're in the Paracast. listening to GCN. Visit GCNlive.com today. Silver has always been nature's very own antibiotic, and only one system allows you to generate an endless supply of natural silver solutions, silverlungs.com. You'll find no wild claims or pseudoscience, just a lifetime of nano-sized pure silver solutions. The Silver Lungs Generator allows you to make your own, so stop paying for silver solutions. The unique lung delivery system targets respiratory infections where other silver solutions simply cannot reach. See the Silver Lungs Generator and Lung Delivery System at silverlungs.com. That's silverlungs.com. What if you could cut your heating bills this winter with your existing wood-burning fireplace and not spend thousands doing it? You can with Great Wall of Fire Fireplace Grates. Our U.S. patented, made-in-America Wall of Fire Grates increase fireplace efficiency, eliminate fireplace smoke problems, and come with a 30-day money-back guarantee. See our grates in action and get free shipping from walloffire.com or call 800-274-7364. Fireplace heat without fireplace smoke. Walloffire.com. USA Radio News with Chris Barnes. Democratic Senator Kristen Sinema's office is responding to her censure by the Arizona Democratic Party as Saturday's censure vote came after Sinema voted in favor of keeping the Senate filibuster in place, which effectively killed passage of two major voting rights bills. Arizona spokeswoman Hannah Hurley saying in a statement, Sinema, quote, promised Arizonians she would be an independent voice for the state and not for either political party. The Prime Minister of New Zealand now canceling her wedding because of the Omicron outbreak. Jacinda Ardern was planning to marry her longtime partner, Clark Gayford, sometime during the Southern Hemisphere summer. The Prime Minister now says that her wedding has been called off as her country struggles with that outbreak. An Oklahoma lawmaker filing a bill that would make the Bible Oklahoma's official state book. And this is USA Radio News. Gun violence on an upswing in New York City again lately, and the new city mayor, Eric Adams, held a roundtable yesterday to address the problem. 
commemorating those who work in law enforcement for all of the crime they've stopped simply by being on the job in the city. You're looking at the shooting that happened. Look at the ones that did not happen That's right. because you were there. Right. You know, so we, 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 we talk about how many runs a batter knock in. We don't say how many runs are saved by the shortstop, you know. And so I know that, you know, you're stopping a whole lot of beefs and battles and retaliatory shootings. Uh, I'm aware of that. Don't listen to the noise. Stay, let's stay focused and not get distracted. A snake wrangler had to be called in to remove dozens of snakes from a home in Maryland where a man was found dead a few days ago. The count currently is standing at 124 snakes removed, and they're still looking for more. This is USA Radio News. As Dr. Wallach says, we all have nutrient deficiencies in our diets and must supplement with 90 essential nutrients in proper balances. At no cost or obligation, Get a personal certified holistic health coach to help you develop a supplement program based on Dr. Wallach's recommendations. Call Linda at 833-VITAL-90. That number to call is 833-848-2590. That's 833-VITAL-90. Hi, this is Dr. Joel Wallach, the Mineral Doctor. You've heard me talk about 90 for Life for years. 60 minerals, 16 vitamins, 12 amino acids, 2 fatty acids. You may not know this, that I've actually designed Arthur decks for animals. That's right. Your pets need 90 for Life, too. Get this essential pet product by calling 877-279-9422. That's 877-279-9422. Again, 877-279-9422. Clark, author of the UFO Encyclopedia and other books. You're listening to the Paracast. Okay, Kirk Collins asked you a question in our last segment. Kevin, would you respond? I think that you're dealing with a lot of people in Vietnam whose training might not have been as robust as mine. And I say that my, my advanced individual training, my AIT, was flight school, so we were like there for months. Infantry school, you had eight weeks of basic training, and then you'd go on to AIT, which was another eight weeks of more intensive uh, in infantry training, that kind of thing. Or you might have gone to artillery school or whatever. And there was a lot of stuff flying around in Vietnam uh, with weird configurations and things like that. So I would I would imagine that more than one time somebody may have seen something they thought was alien or unusual that was part of a mission. I flew one Firefly mission with uh, a friend from flight school. We had to evacuate our aircraft because there was rumors of an attack on our base, and we flew our aircraft out of there, and it turned out we were being housed with another unit. And actually, this is on my blog on Vietnam Ground Zero blogspot.com. It's Flying Firefly. But Firefly was a um, Huey helicopter with a cluster of landing lights in it and they would fly around with those lights at night trying to spot nefarious activity and they had gunships around to to engage and that sort of thing and i can imagine something like that would if you just caught a glance of it or you didn't get a good look at it might create some kind of impression of a um, unusual craft or the configuration of landing lights on aircraft or configuration of lights on other other craft might might cause some uh, confusion but like i said i didn't see anything in in vietnam that 
either through the briefings we, we, we had to sit through or, or myself. I never saw anything that was confusing or confounding that I couldn't couldn't explain. And in Iraq, given that I had uh, in our battalion, I had one of the few top secret clearances. I had access to a lot of information that the rest of the uh, unit didn't have. And, and I was part of my job was to review that information coming over the cipernet. You know, that kind of surprises me in a way because UFOs are supposed to be a worldwide phenomenon. So you think Vietnam, Iraq, they've got to be sightings. But the fact that I didn't see them is, is it doesn't mean there weren't sightings. It just means I didn't see them. The things I was looking for in, in Iraq were intelligence information that would impact our follow-on missions where we were operating. So the fact I didn't see them doesn't mean that they weren't there somewhere, but it wasn't where I was looking for stuff because of what my mission was and what I needed to do. So the fact I didn't see anything is, is not really a completely relevant statement. It just means I didn't see anything. It doesn't mean it wasn't there. So can we move? Can we ask a question about MG 12 now? If you feel you must. Okay. So first of all, I, I think most people know that listen to this show and reading your material know that the documents are bogus. So I, I, a friend of mine, a researcher, Shepard Johnson, who's really interested in some of the intrigue wants to know, first of all, do, do you know Anything about the background of Lee Graham and what role he played? Well, Lee Graham didn't have much of a role to play. He just uh, he he got his information from Bill Moore, and Bill Moore, I think Stan Friedman is is the one that said that Bill Moore had a habit of playing games with people, and he once showed a MUFON ID card or maybe an APRO ID card to uh, Bill Graham, suggesting it was some kind of government agency that he worked for, and and Graham kind of. Went, went, went away with that. But I think that Moore talked about or showed him the documents prior to them getting out into the public arena. So Graham's source of the original MJ-12 documents, the information he had, and I think it, I think he may have communicated some of that to um, Barry Greenwood for, for his publications. I think it was a just cause, I think it was in at that time. But, but Graham... Uh, was interested in UFOs, and his source for the MJ-12 information is Bill Moore. And if you trace it to Bill Moore, then you've kind of fallen off the rails at that point. <laughs> so if uh, if MJ-12 is a con, then Lee Graham was the mark. Yes, one of one of many. Okay. And there were a couple other re- related questions. So, um, uh, I think we know a little bit about Jamie Shandera. He was uh, in television, and he received the documents. They were mailed to him, probably by a partner, or maybe he was a target. Uh, what did you think about him, and do you know what became of him? Because he kind of dropped off the off out of the UFO field. I met him one time in Roswell in 1997, and we didn't chat very much. And I've always tried to figure out, I'm going to leak documents into the public arena about UFOs. So I pick some obscure guy that I don't know to leak these documents to. I, I didn't pick, I don't know, Stan Friedman, uh, Jim and Carl Lorenzen, Don Kehoe, um, people who are at the top of the UFO field. I don't leak them to the New York Times or Newsweek. I, I leak them to some guy in Hollywood that uh, may uh, 
have no access to the media or no- it's almost like the contactees where all these totally unknown people living in small towns meet et and et says now go forth and convey our message evangelize our message of peace and brotherhood it's almost the same thing as contacting some unknown guy in hollywood and the other thing you have to remember is Jamie Shander and Bill Moore and Bob Pratt, and I don't want to say anything about, bad about Bob Pratt because I think he was a good guy, uh, had written a novel in, I think, 1980, and Brad Sparks and Barry Greenwood laid this all out in at the MUFON Symposium, and the information was then later published in the MUFON Journal, uh, showing they'd written a novel which was the basis of MJ-12. And then when the MJ-12 documents leaked, Bob Pratt got a hold of more and said maybe we ought to dust the novel off that they hadn't been able to sell and take it take advantage of this but but that never happened and they do a good good analysis of of all of that that sort of thing i did an update of my book on mj12 called case mj12 which is an updated version of that and it lays out some of the stuff about lee graham and how he was brought into this and it lays it, it and it delves into what barry greenwood and uh, and and brad sparks found about um MJ-12 and all of that stuff and looks at some of the work done by the Woods, um, um, Bob Woods and Ryan Woods and their belief in MJ-12. And uh, one of the things that uh, came up is Stan Friedman told me at one point that Bill Moore had asked him about creating a, a document like it's a government document that he could show to witnesses to suggest the information is out and maybe induce them to to um, talk to him about these hidden secrets and apparently stan was somewhat enthusiastic about it but he also talked to brad sparks and sparks says no this is a bad idea and lo and behold mj12 shows up and what is it oh. a classified government document talking about the crash at roswell and that sort of thing well then you're basically suggesting here that perhaps just perhaps and he's no longer with us to answer the question stan friedman may have been in part instrumental in the creation of mj12 I don't think he was involved in the creation of MJ-12. I think he was left out of that sort of thing. He may have suspected where it eventually suspected where it came from, but I don't think he was involved. He became a big advocate for it, and at one point he talks about how he never said to me that uh, Bill Moore talked about creating a, a, a document, and that's not true. And actually, Don Schmidt had told me that earlier, and I was surprised when Stan confirmed it. Uh, about that. And then, of course, we have Bill Moore talking to Brad Sparks about it as well. So it's clear that Moore had delved into this idea and talked to all of these people. So I think Stan suspected what happened, but it was important for Stan's um, work that MJ-12 be authentic. So he went out of his way to authenticate it, uh, overlooking some of the the flaws in the document. I mean, it's... uh, clearly was created in the mid-1980s. Although it's dated 1952, the information in the documents clearly from the mid-1980s, which has now been superseded by other and better and additional information showing that those documents were not created by insiders. Hey, we have more inside stuff in our next segment with Kevin, Gene, and Kurt. You're in the Paracast. for listening to GCN. Be sure to visit GCNlive.com today. Hey, listeners. 
I want you to have the entire Paracast experience. So I'd like to tell you about After the Paracast. After the Paracast is an exclusive feature for subscribers to the Paracast Plus. With After the Paracast, you never know what's going to happen next. After the Paracast features color commentary, special interviews, and further conversations with Paracast guests. With Paracast Plus, you can download a very special enhanced version of the Paracast also. We do offer exclusive music, videos, and more features are coming. To get more info about subscribing, please visit theparacast.plus. Once again, theparacast.plus. Prices are just $1.50 a week, less than a cup of coffee at your local convenience store. Check out theparacast.plus to learn more about Paracast Plus. It's a fact. The best time to prepare for bad times is during good times. When you know a big storm is coming, you prepare in advance. Same goes for our future. Things seem calm right now. So it's the perfect time to prepare for the next big crisis or disaster. That's why you should stock up on emergency food from MyPatriotSupply.com. We're America's largest preparedness company with millions of happy, well-prepared customers. Our food kits stay fresh for up to 25 years. They're an insurance policy you can eat. When you need it, it'll be there. Shop dozens of food storage kits now at MyPatriotSupply.com. Our kits give you an abundance of food, totaling over 2,000 calories a day. Every family member in America needs one of these kits. So go to MyPatriotSupply.com and grab a few. That's MyPatriotSupply.com. Do it before the peanut butter hits the fan again. MyPatriotSupply.com Now with orders to stay at home, public health concerns, the reality of illness due to pathogens and viruses, your health is at an all-time high risk. That's why it's critical to take a proactive approach to boost your immune system. You can with new nano-colloidal silver from AmeriCare. Our patented process with tiny silver particles, one one-hundredth the size of a red blood cell, allows for maximum body absorption. AmeriCare's nano-colloidal silver effectively disinfects your body internally, attacking pathogens and viruses while supercharging your immune system. Colloidal silver is antibacterial and antiviral. Simply put, it prohibits bacterial respiration, suffocating viral cells, preventing the virus from replicating. And now, due to public health concern, AmeriCare is authorized to offer our lowest and best price ever, around a dollar a day. But supplies are limited. Purchase nano-colloidal silver now at immunesupportnow.com. That's immunesupportnow.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Supplies are limited. Jake was in big trouble with the IRS. He owed how much? $92,000. Ouch. And the IRS left no room for Jake to breathe. They put a lien on my house, took all the money out of my bank account, took money out of my paychecks. So it was a nightmare. He needed help fast. I figured that all these companies were the same until I called federal tax management. You could just tell they knew what they were talking about. Right then and there, I felt like I had some hope. Stop the liens, levies, and garnishments fast and qualify for one of several special IRS programs that could reduce or even eliminate your tax debt. So, how did it go for Jake? They did what they said they would do. They came through for me. I ended up saving an unbelievable amount. I was so jazzed. I was extremely happy. If you owe more than $10,000 in back taxes, take Jake's advice. Give federal tax management a phone call. If they help me, they can help anybody. Call the federal tax manager hotline now 800-503-8625 800-503-8625 800-503-8625
Hi, it's Grant Cameron from PresidentialUFO.com. You're listening to the Paracast, the gold standard of paranormal radio. So, therefore, it has a 1980s sensibility, MJ-12, supplanted by real knowledge. What has happened to Bill Moore? Is he still alive? As far as I know, he's still alive. I, I was talking to someone several weeks ago who has been in recent contact with Bill Moore, and I don't remember who it was. So he's still around, but he's dropped off the ufological radar. I think he kind of committed ufological suicide back in 1989 when he was at the MUFON Symposium in Las Vegas and confessed to being a unpaid agent of the Air Force Office of Special Investigation and was doing their dirty work for them and supplying fake documents into the UFO community and that sort of thing. And after that, he became somewhat of a pariah in the UFO field. I don't know what he's done or where he's been since then. I know we got, I say we, Don Schmidt and I got into trouble with him. He was always going to sue us over talking about Roswell. And I'm thinking, back in the early 1990s, if, if I wasn't being threatened with a lawsuit at some point, I figured I wasn't doing the job right. Because we were getting all kinds of threats of lawsuits. And I'm always thinking, yeah, come ahead. Yeah, tell us about how you gathered these documents under oath in a court of law. That'll be interesting. <laughs> what were you threatened for in terms of lawsuits? Well, we're just talking about Roswell, for God's sakes. Stan Friedman actually wrote our publisher and said that we, Don Schmidt and I, engaged in flights of fantasy and stolen, stolen other researchers' information and passed it off as our own. And I'm thinking, that's really nice, Stan, just because we wouldn't allow you to horn in on our book. He proposed to us at one point that, that his name go third on our book and he get a, a quarter of the money for the book. And he said no. So I spent literally 24 hours on the telephone with the lawyers at Avon. Not all at one time, obviously. But finally, one of the lawyers said, did you record your interviews? And I said, for the most part, yeah. And he said, thank you. Goodbye. Because we could prove we'd gathered the information. And then we see Stan's book come out, Crash of Corona. And there's interviews that Don and I conducted. And Stan's is, is published them as if they're his own without any credit or attribution to us. And we were always very careful to attribute where the information came from. And Stan's got information in his book that Don and I had gathered and shared with him. And he's reporting it as if, it, if he had gathered it. And, Talk about and then, rehashing. Well, and then the interesting thing, Dolan, in his books, is talking about uh, some of the Roswell stuff. And the funny thing is, he quotes the source of the information to Stan Friedman. And it goes to Stan Friedman and stops, but I knew where it came from because I'd gathered the information, and Don had gathered the information. So what's your evaluation of Richard Dolan's research? I haven't followed a lot of it. There are some... Chasing footnote errors in there, and I, I talked about those on my blog. But for me, I know, Kurt, you do it more on an active basis. I always kind of blunder into these things. Somebody says something, and I'm trying to figure out where it came from and how we how we got there. And I found a couple of things in Dolan's book like that reference to, I think it's the Bill Brazel interview that uh, Don and I had conducted in 1989. Uh, Dolan re references Stan's book. And there's nothing in Stan's book that suggests where it came from. But like I said, I knew where it came from. I think he gathered an awful lot of stuff. I think he followed his up as best he could. He, he treated it more as a historic project than a scientific project. And the difference, the way the methodology for between a scientific investigation and a historical investigation is somewhat different. Some I know that critical. when I had met him the first or second time, I had read his first UFO book. And I looked at it. 
and I noticed something about Kehoe that was dead wrong, and I corrected him, but that doesn't mean anything. I mean, someone writes a book of a few hundred pages. I'd be surprised if there weren't errors. Oh, yeah. And it, some of them are introduced by the copy editors, and some of them are just information that you get wrong and you don't catch it when you're proofing it yourself. I find it very hard to proofread my own work because I know what it's supposed to say. What I do when I don't have another editor to work with is I read it two or three times, try to get rid of most of the errors, and then, of course, can still make the same mistakes. But at least it makes it more presentable, we hope. I read the stuff out loud. And if you stumble over it, then you go back to see what you stumbled over. But I have my own cadence, my own rhythm in, in writing this stuff. And so I know what it's supposed to say. And I sometimes blow right back, right by the mistakes like that. So, I mean, you can you can find that. And there's in um, the history of UFO crashes, for example, I have the Willingham affidavit as if it's authentic. And here's here's the information from an Air Force colonel, a retired Air Force colonel, blah, blah, blah. And it wasn't until I was doing crash and I thought, well, I'll update the information and see what I if there's anything new about Willingham and discovered the guy was a complete fraud. So you can take a look and say, well, you know, Randall, you blew it there in the uh, history of UFO crashes. And I'll say I certainly did. But at the time, it was the best information that we had. I mean, Kufo swore by it, and, and we had the affidavit. And if I talked to Willingham at that time, he would have told me the same thing. So there was no way to get beyond that. It was only after I discovered the story had changed so significantly that I was getting information from the record center in St. Louis and a record center in Denver about Air Force Reserve personnel and finding out the documents that he submitted were fraudulent and that he had never been an officer. Let me ask you a quick question. Was he alive still when you learned about all this? Yes. Did you confront him? I felt somewhat sorry for him because his wife had died, his children were dead. I think his children were dead, let me say that. And uh, he was living alone in Texas. And uh, I called him and talked to him a little bit about that and gathered some information. I never really confronted him about about the information, but I did put it in, in the book, Crash. I put the information in there and I did an article, I think, for IUR about that as well and how we chased that down. But uh, I felt kind of sorry for the guy. He was like 109 years old when I talked to him and I just made up to 109. But he was in his, in, in his 80s and his health was poor. And I just didn't feel it was right to confront him at that point. Let him live with his fantasies. We're going to, of course, have to adjourn this segment this episode of the Paracast in a few moments, but Kevin will be back for after the Paracast. We, we will probe further into the R word and what further work he's doing on it. You think here, though, what motivates people to do what he did? Was it glory or profit or what? I think it's just there's a book called Stolen Valor, and it's about all these people who claim Vietnam service who were never there, never in the military. One of our senators, and I hesitate to bring up his name because he, he presented me with a bronze star medal, <laughs> but Tom Harkin had claimed to be a Vietnam veteran and it turned out that he hadn't been in Vietnam. You know, So there was a, a, a judge in um, Illinois who claimed to have a Medal of Honor, and he got outed when it was discovered, he put in for the license plates, Medal of Honor license plates, and he discovered that he wasn't a, a Medal of Honor recipient. I think it's just to make themselves sound better, more heroic. So that's kind of where we are. Kevin Randall, please tell our listeners where they can find more of the stuff that you do. 
Well, the blog is called kevinrandall.blogspot.com. There's a search engine on there, so if I've sent something today that's interesting, you you type in the, like Willingham's name, it'll bring up all the articles that I've written over the years about Willingham. I did a blog um, called VietnamGroundZero.blogspot.com, which I say is my relatively true experiences in Vietnam, and I say relatively true because reading some of the letters I sent home, I realized some of my memories weren't exactly accurate based on what I'd said in the uh, in the letters. Uh, the book Level Land is available at Amazon. You can get it as a um, ebook or as a, a paperback and there's a hardback edition coming from that as well for those who want to collect that sort of thing all the books are available at, at amazon as well so you can, you can find them there there are lots of them by the way you can find us on twitter if you look for the powercast look for the powercast on facebook which is kind of messed up in not allowing us to use our url on facebook i guess they don't like the powercast.com it's going to send objects down to them and something like that. No. Anyway, it's going to hurt Zuckerberg. I guess he's afraid of us. You're going to get branded Paracast merchandise at the Paracast.shop. That's the Paracast.shop. And we also offer the Paracast Plus, where you get an enhanced ad free version of this show. If you're a subscriber, also the After the Paracast podcast with extra extended, uncensored discussions. And Kevin will be back to talk about. The R word and war on after the Paracast. For more information, go to the Paracast.plus. That's the Paracast.plus. And get this use the coupon code UFO20, that's UFO20, to get a 20% discount for five year and lifetime subscriptions. The Paracast.plus. Kevin Randall, always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for joining us on the Paracast. Glad to be here and see you later, uh, Curtin Jean. Featuring Gene Steinberg is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Tune in next week for a new adventure in the Paracast. <laughs>